Hi there, my name is Donald Hing. I am an actor in Vancouver, Canada, and you can see me on shows such as Arrow, The Flash, The 100, Supernatural, and Two Sentence Horror Stories. You're listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Welcome to Neil Before Pod, the fastest pod alive. Meh, not even close. I'm your host Craig, and we are here to talk about the final season of Cecile. Sorry, I mean the final season of The Flash. We're finally here. It's the end of the line, the last dash to the finish line and other running metaphors. Joining me for this is the long-suffering Flash viewer who has been here through thick and thin to talk about this train wreck of a show. It's Andrew, hello. Hey. Should be more excited. After this, we never have to talk about the flag again. Oh yes, I am excited on a psychological level. It's just that actually getting to this point by sitting down and watching this unendurable garbage was truly exhausting, and I'm still recovering from it. Does that take care of your spoiler-free thoughts, or do you have more? I pretty much sums it up. More specifically, I just wanted to mention that it's one thing to go into a season of a TV show with very, 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 very low expectations, but quite another for it to not even meet them. Yeah, I was expecting it to be bad, and it somehow ended up being worse, so well done. Let's name check that warp zone video early on about the writers being hostages in a writer's room trying to deliberately get themselves freed from it by writing crap storytelling i think that actually sums it up now more than ever because i genuinely do not understand how anybody involved in this train wreck could have actually believed they were creating something good i don't get it either you know in the first spider-verse movie where miles morales deliberately gets a zero on a test. So he might get thrown out of that school he doesn't really want to be in because he feels isolated. (laughs) And the teacher says, the only way you would get zero on this test is by knowing what all the right answers are. wonder if the Flash writers are a bit like that. They know so much about storytelling that they want to get out of this crap by deliberately doing everything wrong. So it could only be this bad if those writing it knew how to do it properly in the first place. Yeah, which does beg the question, why wouldn't you just do it properly in the first place and make a good show for everybody? You have to wonder. That about sums up my spoiler-free thoughts as well. I didn't like it. I thought it was a really bad final season. It became clear very early on that nobody knew what on earth they were doing in order to wrap this up. They talked about this being the big ending, but it takes over half the season for it to start thinking about wrapping anything up. And even then, you could just see it as just another season of The Flash. You could see it go on to season 10, based on what they did here. Yeah, this refusal to give the show and story any true sense of finality. It's almost like the final insult, really. Yeah. Okay, we've just given you 13 episodes of a reprehensible narrative mess, and we're just going to suggest that there could be more of it, because we don't actually want to bring it to a conclusion, because we're terrible at our jobs and all this stuff in the press about oh we don't have as much time as we usually do so we're finding it more difficult to fit everything in and when you just watch the season you're thinking 
they're not using the time they have. So what would another nine episodes have given us? If what was on screen was deemed essential, then I sure to think just what level of unendurable tedium was excised. Yeah, but they don't have time to wrap up the Legends or other Arrowverse characters because they have so much to do in this season. They barely have time to wrap up Barry and Iris in any meaningful way, so they said. Again, just terrible at their jobs. Yes. Shall we go into the spoiler force and just dig in? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, we can speak freely. Let's just start with Barry because he is apparently the lead of the show, even though he spent quite a lot of the season not being around. Good gig for Grant Gustin. You guys wrap this up. I'll be here sometimes. Yeah, I'll, I'll just appear when it's convenient. And when I'm not here, it's due to some speed force time travel nonsense. I'm literally going to get taken away and put somewhere and I'll be back eventually. Or the episode where he goes on vacation with Iris. <sighs> I'm really struggling to think what Barry's arc was in this season, if there was one. It actually wrapped up what I thought was going to be his entire arc in the first episode. The whole idea of you need to get away from preparing for the future that you think is going to be the future that is going to happen. And by the end of the episode, Iris is like, you shouldn't do this. And he's like, okay, I'll burn that book then. We don't need to worry about it anymore. And that's it. It's sometimes a bit difficult to talk about Barry's development arcs because he rarely develops. Or when he does, he almost immediately backslides and forgets basic lessons that he learned the previous episode. Yeah, it's been nine years of him learning the same lesson consistently over and over again. Exactly. So, in a way, having him not really progress as a character in any meaningful manner is actually fairly consistent with how the show has thus far gone. Yeah. One of my favourite episodes of the season, and it's all relative, but the time loop episode I actually quite liked, at least initially. The fact that it resolved itself without any kind of meaningful resolution. It just stopped after Barry realised that he needs to take things a bit slower. I don't know. They didn't really explain what caused the time loop, and then they didn't explain what fixed it. Yeah, it's frustrating. It actually reminded me a bit of that time travel time loop season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in this post-apocalyptic future after the Earth has been shattered. And throughout the season, they keep on learning that nothing they can do can prevent this. It's just going to happen. They have to prepare for it. And then when they get back to their own time and just battle against the forces against them, then that stops the future from coming about. But it was never explained what they did differently, what it was that fixed it. And it's the same kind of thing. The whole point of time loop episodes is that they're a puzzle and you have to figure out the solution before you're able to beat the game, to extend the metaphor. But not having anything like that in that particular episode just made it feel meaningless. Yeah, the difference with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. example is that the emotional beats were in the right place. So the fact that it wasn't clear what was done differently necessarily wasn't as big of a problem because everything surrounding it worked but in this it was apparent because the stuff around it wasn't working i think they were going for the bill murray groundhog day approach of you need to live the perfect day in order to progress to the next one that also actually reiterates the point of barry's development because throughout groundhog day bill murray's character gradually becomes a better person after starting out as selfish and spiteful he eventually becomes more compassionate to the point that later on in the film we find out that he's amassed this massive list of things that he needs to do for everyone throughout the town to help them throughout the day because in so many iterations he'd learned what they needed and he could do to make their lives slightly better imagine i'm going to do that every day in order to get out of a day that would be brutal exhausting. But in the case of The Flash, it was when they 
approach problems together and I guess actually approach their problems rather than ignoring them as they were doing. That seemed to be the solution, but again, it's not as strong as it could have been. Yeah, because the notion that you solve a problem by dealing with a problem is not really the most complex lesson to learn. No, but it's something that really needs to be stressed in Team Flash because how many times is there a problem and they think, instead of letting the team in on it and getting their help, I'm just going to keep it to myself until it gets so bad that everybody else finds out about it anyway. Yes, and it will inevitably come out at a suitably dramatic juncture when there is something else incredibly serious and destructive going on. Yes. And it will hamper that. At least we didn't really have that this season as such. No, but that would have at least been something. <laughs> yeah, we didn't have much of anything. So all I've really got for Barry is preparing slash forcing the future, which he does with that book. And Iris says, I don't want to just be waiting for chapters in a book to come to pass. And Barry's like, yeah, fair enough. We'll not do that. There's a thing which we'll probably talk a bit more about later, talking about his place in the world and his role as a hero within that world. And then there's a preparing to be a father thing, which kind of comes in, but kind of doesn't. I do have questions about the whole Nora birth thing, because we've had two versions of Nora in different timelines. So the version that we had in season, was it five? I think so. She died or never existed. Or was wiped from existence. And then another Nora later showed up who looked exactly the same, but had a slightly different personality. And now we have baby Nora here who's born earlier than she should be so genetically none of those Noras should look alike because that's not how genetics works no but then again these are the people who believe that if a young woman has an entirely different father the only thing that will change is the color of her (laughs) hair yeah that was very bizarre and I know I shouldn't really be critiquing that as such because the whole idea is that I guess they're slightly improving the future as they go so they're making it better they're making a better world for Nora but I just can't get past the fact that she should be a different person each time because you only have one chance to be you right based on when conception happens yeah so it's not that that same egg and that same sperm are stored for later or earlier in this case Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really make any sense that the same Nora is born because she's born earlier. So the Nora that we see in 2045 is now a little bit older, only by a month or two, but still. Honestly, I think you've thought this through more than anyone involved in this show ever did. Yeah. And to be fair, we've seen so many alternate universe things where people are born in completely different universes and they still have doppelgangers across the universes. So fine. But we've also seen alternate universes where the, the actors playing the same character are different, including in this show. Actually. Indeed. We've had two non-Grant Gustin Barry Allens in this show, haven't we? Yes. John Wesley Shipp and Ezra Miller at different points. Yeah. And then Jay Garrick. It looks exactly like another Barry Allen. It's very confusing. You just don't think about it. Or I'm just trying not to. Even though we're doing a podcast where we're challenged to think about it. Yeah, but I think there's limited satisfaction to be gained from overthinking something that really wasn't thought about in the first place. Yeah. One major thing that Barry does early on that bizarrely never comes up again is he assembles a team of rogues. And this show doesn't get away with calling Flash villains rogues because it has never done that. It's never established that Captain Cold assembled a team of villains and decided to call them rogues. It's a dumb comic book thing anyway, but they haven't earned it. I might have mentioned this on another podcast, I can't remember, but I've never really liked the term rogue when applied to comic book villains. Because 
to me, the connotations of the word make them sound far less dangerous and destructive and evil than they can be. It makes them just sound like harmless kids having a laugh by raising a little hell. Which, to be fair, fits the Flash TV show very well. <laughs> None of these people seem all that threatening. Are you at all threatened by Goldface, despite the fact he runs a gang that is prominent in the criminal underworld? I'm just always too distracted by how much of a black exploitation cliche he is. <laughs> So his team of rogues were Goldface, Pied Piper, and Mark. Oh, and Jacko. He was all right, actually. I quite liked him when he first appeared, because he was one of those, I'm not a villain, I just don't know how to control my powers type guys. So then having him here was okay, but I don't think they did much with the dynamic of the quote-unquote rogues. They just sort of appeared and disappeared as needed. Which is somewhat indicative of a lot of the shows use of its cast. And I'm going to try to avoid making that same sarcastic point every single time, because it's going to get really boring. <laughs> it's a bit frustrating just watching them throw together this bunch of characters who really have like nothing in common and haven't ever interacted before, but then really not do anything with that. They're just this random assortment of faces because the story needed this many characters for the heist. And the problem with the way they've done it, so Goldface has never really been that well-defined. He's more defined in association with Amunet. <sighs> At least she didn't turn up. Small mercies and all that. She wasn't there, so good for that. Katie Sackhoff had better things to do. She would have been doing The Mandalorian, I guess, so she wouldn't have time to appear on this. That's true, yeah. So she dodged a bullet there. Otherwise, they probably would have tried to cram her in. Undoubtedly. Pied Piper, he is not the same Pied Piper that we're aware of. Also, he hasn't been in the show an awful lot across its run. But they established that post-crisis, he's basically a different guy. Well, when, as you say, this is a character who hasn't appeared very often, though I think I could probably get away with making him different enough to fit with their needs of the episode, just because the audience never really got a proper grasp on who he really was in the first place. They weren't really interested in characterization; They just needed, as you say, faces to make up the numbers. And it's because Red Death had her own team of rogues that were equally ineffectual. <laughs> Although, at least they were faintly interesting in being different versions of characters who we previously encountered. They badly underused Richard Harmon as Captain Boomerang, or the new Captain Boomerang, didn't they? I'm thinking back to the way he was in The 100, which is essentially the way he was acting here, but they didn't do anything with him. Yeah, I've seen him in quite a few different things, and he does typically play varying degrees of remorseless psychopath, because it's evidently something that he is very good at. And he did certainly deserve more, because I think he could have actually made Owen Mercer into quite a compelling villain. Because even though the notion of Captain Boomerang, the character and his ability is it almost sounds like a joke but when you've got someone who can infuse that much menace and sadism into it then it suddenly becomes someone who you take seriously but they just did not do enough with that it's a persistent problem on the flash of the villains shouldn't ever be a challenge to him and captain boomerang would be pretty high on the list of not a problem for the flash at the peak of his powers as he's supposed to be here you'd think wouldn't you but barry's persistent issue of i'm going to stop and chat for a little bit before i inevitably get knocked on my ass and the villain escapes doesn't seem to do him much good. That's a lesson he never learned. I can't help wondering if that's because Barry in the comics is really smart arse and talkative and they tried to replicate that with the TV series but then every time they feel compelled for him to do it they can't figure out a reason why the villain wouldn't be able to take advantage of that. Well the villain usually does. Exactly. Barry will turn up and say hey stop robbing that thing and the villain will make some quip and then knock him over. And then escape. And despite Barry being infinitely fast at this point, 
the villain manages to escape. Yeah, yes, and Lena and M2 have to regroup back at Star Labs and come up with an elaborate plan to defeat them at some other juncture 18 minutes later, at which point, when he arrives, the only thing he says will be, it's over. God, that got tedious. And inevitably, it'll be some other member of the team that ends up bringing them down. Yeah, because the problem with speedsters is that, as a real superhero, they are ludicrously overpowered. And you need to be really inventive to think of ways that would genuinely defeat them. So I think they maybe realised that having Barry always defeat villains with super speed would end up getting pretty boring. So they have to think of some variations on it, or think of some different ways a villain could be taken down. So it just doesn't look like they're repeating themselves. Even though they would just repeat themselves, but with another character. Exactly. But this way they can pretend they're not doing it. This season did have a lot of speedsters running while chucking lightning at each other fights, didn't it? I think it was just because this is the last season and had a bunch of effects budget to use up. So in those particular scenes, certainly they just went wild. I don't think there was any real standout effects moments this season, though, apart from Grodd. That's always an impressive rendering. And maybe blood work? I guess so. Yeah, when he went all full blood work at the end. Full on apocalyptic hemovirus thing. Yeah. But you're right. They have written themselves in a corner a long time ago in terms of Barry's abilities. As in, every few episodes they'll say, wow, he's never been faster than he is now. And then they never exploit that advantage at all. So... You just have to conclude that Barry's an idiot. But also what annoyed me when they did that is exactly what difference does this make? What quantifiable advantage is there to him being able to run at, I don't know, like 1,500 miles an hour than would be to be able to run at 1,600 miles an hour? Considering he can go so fast that time effectively stops, how much faster can he go? Yeah, which, again, they always forget about. Oh, yeah, flash time has never been used since, really. Yeah, because they basically realised, okay, we just gave him a game-breaking power, so let's just pretend that we didn't do that, so we don't have to keep justifying why he doesn't ever use it again. Let's just give everyone else game-breaking powers instead. (laughs) Different game-breaking powers. So the Red Death arc, then, we'll just talk about that. What did you think of doing Red Death? I never read the Red Death stuff in the comics. I just understand it's insane Batman with super speed. Pretty much, yeah. Is the whole corrupted version of Justice thing, is that part of the Red Death thing in the comics? It may well have been. I honestly can't remember. I thought that whole arc was an odd opening to the season, because it didn't seem to really relate to anything. The appearance of the Red Death didn't solve any mysteries, and her presence ultimately didn't set anything off or provide any great revelation. Aside from the fact that the multiverse still exists, and the characters now know this, but at this point it's completely moot, so why do we even care? Well, at that point... They said she was from an alternate timeline, but I don't understand the difference. Because they do make a point of distinguishing between the alternate timeline and alternate universe thing. As in, Wally, you weren't witnessing alternate timelines, you were witnessing alternate universes. But isn't an alternate timeline an alternate universe? Oh, that was, the, yeah. Sorry, I was mixing up when things happened. Yeah, but they do tie this version of Ryan Wilder into that. So they say that, oh no, she was actually from another era. That's what Bloodwork ends up saying, I think. He ends up pointing out that that Ryan was from another Earth, which, as you said, makes no difference because it doesn't really factor into what's going on here. And I did end up coming up with a bit of a headcanon around the difference between alternate timeline and alternate universe, which shows more thought into it than the writers put into it. But it's the idea of an alternate timeline is a possible future that could happen if certain events play out in a given way. So you can change the future, but that doesn't make another universe An alternate universe is just another universe that you can go to, where what you do in this one makes no difference to it. 
So when you look at, say, reverse Flashpoint from the previous season, for example, that's the corrupted future of Earth Prime. Yeah, that makes sense. Kind of, but also not. (laughs) Because that version of Ryan shouldn't exist. The implication was she was from that timeline, wasn't it? Yes. Because she talked about being best friends with Iris, but she also talked about being betrayed by her Flash. When would that have happened? Unclear. Yeah, so... Maybe she was from that alternate future, maybe she wasn't, but it doesn't actually matter. Yeah, because in the end it's basically just evil Batwoman doing some random stuff and then is partially defeated by real Batwoman, who only turns up right at that point because reasons. Yeah, and she uses Grodd to create psychic avatars as a police force. Because that's a plan, apparently. Yeah, that's a perfectly logical endpoint to a thought process. How did she get there? How did you even get to that point? Where did this plan come from and what is even going on? The thing that really bothered me about the Red Death arc is precisely the whole idea of it's an alternate Ryan, so it doesn't matter. It's not the Ryan that we know. So what you have is you have this story that could have been a fallen hero, a corrupted ally, someone they have to bring back from the brink of insanity, all that stuff. You know, story with actual consequences. Yeah, and it's fine because it's not or Ryan, so nothing's happened there. So if we defeat this one, it has no real bearing on anything. Everything, once again, returns to normal, returns to status quo. Yeah, so what you should really have is, oh God, it's our friend and she's lost her way in some way. Even though we've never actually seen any of these characters interact, Ryan has never interacted with anybody else in the Arrowverse other than in that alternate future. Yeah. So that's a problem. Even with Kate King, you would have had some connection there because she has at least been in the same room as some of these people. (laughs) Yes. Whereas Ryan hasn't. And the way they handled the whole reveal, I suppose, if you can call it that, the reveal of Ryan or other Ryan was ludicrous as well. Barry says, did anybody contact the Bat team and ask about a speedster with a Bat symbol? And No, but Luke did say that Ryan went missing on a recent patrol. Just so casually. It's almost as casually as, oh yeah, I was having drinks with Nate and he was telling me about Thon. And I thought I'd pass this on to you. <laughs> casually chatting to someone and they told me this really important detail that would have really helped and then ryan didn't go missing at all because she just turned up exactly so why was she declared missing what happened there did she go into hiding was she trying to hunt herself down don't know she just turns up and throws a batarang that saps speed where'd she get that which again exists it's almost as ludicrous as oliver having a kryptonite arrow despite the fact that supergirl didn't exist on his earth at that time <laughs> Where'd he get that? Why do you have that? I was kind of okay with that because it's Oliver. He's hyper-competent. He'd find it some way. Actually, I can't believe that, yeah. He stole it when he was speaking to someone that was from her universe. I don't know. Doesn't matter. But the speed-sapping Batarang, it's another one of those insanely useful weapons that would be handy to just have. Yeah, but again, if that was something that someone just had, then it would constantly need to be justified why they couldn't use it. Yeah, but then you have the saccharine wrap-up where Ryan says to Iris, oh, you should come to brunch with me, Kara, and Nia, and other women in this <laughs> national city. All as Arrowverse chicks, we have a brunch once a week or once a month or whatever it is. You should come. Uh, yes, because as everyone knows, the only thing that a woman needs to have in common with someone to be friends with them is for her to be another woman. Yes. It's a bit like when you had Barry and Iris's wedding and Iris just had no friends. She was getting her nails done with all the superhero people. Everyone else is friends. No one has a life outside the team anymore. Or ever did, I guess. Martin Stein had a wife. That's about it. Yeah, she turned up occasionally. And Caitlin has a mother that occasionally shows up. That's true. Although not always, because sometimes she'll refer to conversations that she had with her off screen. Yes. I really love it when TV shows resolve important plot points with a simple conversation that summarises the conversation that we would have liked to have seen. Yes, but it's much more efficient this way. It sure is. And boring. 
Also true. So Red Death, yeah, not much of anything. It was the first of the let's run down the street and throw lightning at each other until someone else comes and solves a problem. Sounds about right. And she can get out of the suit and the suit acts on its own. That's another thing that happened. I would love to if he'd done something fun with that, like her suit was being worn by some kind of wraith or a natural force wielding it, not just some remote controlled thing. Yeah. And then they just stick her in Argus as well. They just say that. There's just a duplicate of Ryan Wilder in Argus. Yeah, just like that, because I'm sure there'd be quite a few people there who'd be quite interested in taking things revenge on someone who looks like Wild Rider. Yeah. I mean, I'm rewriting the season for them. We do have a trend on this podcast of just rewriting things as we go, as in suggesting different ways they could have done things. Listen to our Spider-Man No Way Home episode where we suggest a film that Spider-Man No Way Home could have been before they made Spider-Man No Way Home, as in this interim film that's about Peter acclimating to life with his secret identity being out to the public. And then listen to the Quantumania podcast where we create three different films that Quantumania wasn't, but kind of tried to be. So... We've got previous for this. Maybe it's our thing now. We just do this. But if the negative speed force was supposed to be the big bad of the season, what you should have had was throughout every arc of the season is essentially the negative speed force burning through unworthy avatars. Makes sense. So it could have been, again, you do the corrupted hero thing, as in Ryan Wilder is temporarily corrupted because you can't make her an out-and-out villain because you can't really walk her back from that. So obviously she doesn't kill anybody or do anything that's really that bad. But someone needs to have an emotional conversation with her where they say, but Ryan, this isn't you. You have to reject the negative speed force. It's preying on some anxiety or some hatred that you have that we didn't really know about because you seemed kind of fine at the end of Batwoman season three. There wasn't really anything bothering you too much. I don't know. Maybe someone killed Sophie and she wants revenge against them and has extended that to just all criminals because she doesn't really know who killed Sophie. So the best way to do it is to... Just bring all criminals to justice. Yeah, which as a theme for people who wear emblems of bats on their chest, it's a pretty traditional one. Yeah. So that would possibly work. I mean, you do kill Sophie off screen, but they're never making another season of that show, so it doesn't really matter. Would you say that's an example of fridging? I guess it is. Yeah, and also bury your gaze as well. Yeah, so there's those two problems, but neither of those are happening in the show anyway, so it's... It's a motivation, I suppose. But then you have to have this whole backstory that the viewer might know about in order to follow it. You know, like when they brought Nia in and you were supposed to know what she was up to. Yeah, so that would have been a problematic trope, I suppose. But at the same time, would it have been any worse than what they did? Because it would have at least been something rather than, I'm from an alternate timeline and hate criminals because I hate criminals. And my flash betrayed me, but we're not going to show any of that. We're not going to do anything with that. We're not even going to do a flashback where we see me fighting the flash from my own timeline. So my motivation and backstory is utterly meaningless instead of using the backstory that we could have added to from the character that already exists. Yeah, as motivational origins go, it's pretty weak. Yeah, because you have nothing to latch on to. It's just she tells you something and then you're like, okay, that's why you're evil. So it's all just so pointedly generic. Yeah, and then she's defeated easily by someone that has no speed powers, so... Great. Setting up a recurring theme this season. Absolutely. After the Red Death arc, we had a whole bunch of filler. Crazy amount of filler. Remember how they don't have time to resolve the legends or other characters or all these other things they don't have time for? But what we do have time for is... Becky Sharp. Becky Sharp. And Nia and Barry and Iris unable to leave a room for some reason. (laughs) Well, for a reason that we know about, but just some reason the becky episode so this is something that we should get onto anyway because it's actually about cecile and becky's just part of it 
Becky survived. I actually like Becky, so I'm glad that she didn't die a horrible death like she did on Earth 1. Yeah, I'm the same, actually. I did really like the character. So I was quite sad when she was killed. I would have liked to have seen more of her. And you got to. It's a shame it's in this season, but <laughs> you at least got to see more of her with her shrill voice and just bad, bad luck. This is the episode that is about Cecile solidifying her work-life balance. The writers were in a bit of a corner when Jesse L. Martin decided to leave the series, although I don't think he was actually missing from that much of it. He could have just been not in certain episodes and you probably wouldn't have noticed. Yeah, there weren't that many episodes that he wasn't at least in, but the ones that he was in, it wasn't for very much. Yeah, you could have explained his absence with some random line of dialogue that says, Joe is... Going for a walk. Joe's looking after the child that we've suddenly <laughs> remembered we have. I think Jenna's second appearance is in this season. She has one of the most absent children of this entire show. It's one of those things that when she was born, I was wondering what the point of it was. And they never explained what the point of it was. I just think because for a lot of people, having a kid signifies a relationship developing into something serious and permanent that looks towards the future. Because people simply being together obviously can't do that. The actual consideration that they have in this season is probably something they should have discussed years ago, as in, we're both older, we both have a kid, we have dangerous occupations. What do we do about this? Are we going to continue to live like this or should we make a massive change? And it's bizarre that it takes this long in order for them to actually have that conversation. Because Jenna's born at the end of the Thinker season, which is season... Four, I believe? Yeah, so it's been five years since Jen was born and now they're suddenly only thinking about, oh, we'd live dangerous lives and whatever. But they always seem to have a babysitter on tap that doesn't seem to mind that they're called on to do all this extra work. Practically raise their child for them. Yeah, well, we do live in a gig economy now and people have to make money as and when they can. Yeah, they could have had some fun with that if they were going to. They could have had some lines about, oh, the overtime on the babysitter is going to be insane (laughs) because we're stuck in a hostage situation or whatever, those kinds of things. Exactly, at least acknowledge it and do something interesting with it. Instead, Jenna just disappears for most of it and she's back now because she's convenient because she feeds into Joe's decision to leave where he decides to buy a house in the country and initially decides that Cecile and Jenna are going to live with him there. They ultimately decide her commitments in Central City are too important to leave behind so she gets to do her lawyer plus superhero thing and then only go home to see them in the weekends but they don't sell Joe's house. So somehow they can afford two houses and they come to the conclusion that her being a weekend parent is a good thing. Apparently, yeah. All that just to get Jesse L. Martin written out of the show for, what, three episodes or something? Yeah, it's very, very bad writing for something that barely needed justification in the first place. I mean, don't get me started on the bad... In fact, do get me started on the bad writing associated with this nonsense. Because it was the notion of this new house that you've bought somehow, even though you haven't sold the old one, somehow, again, we've bought two houses, we're that rich somehow, despite the fact that Joe's on a policeman's salary, or he's not now, actually, because he was forced into retirement. Don't know what kind of money he'd be on. Cecile might be on, well, she works for herself, so is she on decent money? Seems she helps people that don't have money, so... She won't be a rich lawyer. No, and uh, since she was previously uh, assistant DA or something like that, so she'd basically be on a government salary. Yeah. Does Barry just pay everybody out of Star Labs money? 
that comes out, he must. You'd think so. However, Star Labs even makes money in the first place, since no one actually does any science there. They did explain that before. It's the idea of there's patents and stuff that are constantly bringing in money. Yeah, actually, as I said, I think I dimly recall mentioning that. So there'll be inventions out there that are constantly making money because I guess they're household things, and that brings in enough cash to A, keep the lights on, and B, apparently fund Chester, Allegra, and so on's lifestyle. Yes, and also provide enough power for whatever sacky Wi-Fi nonsense they get up to this week. Yeah, their operating budget is taken care of, it seems, by the money that Star Labs somehow generates, which is... Something, I guess. I don't know. But it's something they don't really bring up. Although I remember they brought it up late in Arrow, where Curtis and Felicity suddenly have a conversation about how they make money, and Curtis talks about how he does freelance coding to make ends meet. I'd forgotten that, actually. But yeah, you're right. And Felicity talks about how she's living off her severance from when she got kicked out of the CEO position at Palmertech. These are the kinds of things I want to know when I'm watching stuff, though. I want to know how they're funding themselves, where the money's coming from, how they support themselves. I grew up reading Spider-Man. And there's so many Spider-Man stories about how he has no money. So I like to know where it's coming from. Yeah, because justifying how these people are literally able to live, it doesn't kick off any suspension of disbelief. It just demonstrates that you actually thought through your premise. Yeah, here's our setup, here's how it works, and here's how we get to keep doing it. Fine. But anyway, they have their two houses, somehow. They've afforded these two houses, somehow. And Cecile is worried about dividing her time. The commute will be too long. It'll take hours. Every day. She can't do that every day. So that's why she gets to come home at the weekends. But the show conveniently forgets, despite the fact that they are used in the same episode where the problem is raised, that they have Nash's smoke bombs that can teleport them instantaneously from one location to another. They have never detailed an upper limit of range of these things. So as far as we know, they can go anywhere on Earth by using them. But she's worried about missing her train. I just don't see how it's possible for someone to open up a plot hole that glaring and not notice. It'd be different if it was something that they had before that they conveniently don't use anymore, but it's not. They were using them repeatedly throughout this season. And I kind of understand the rationale for it. They wanted to create a domestic problem that couldn't be solved by superhero stuff for Cecile and Joe to work through, which was nonsense anyway, because the solution's ridiculous. The solution to this problem is... I don't see our young child five days a week. That sounds like great parenting. Well done, guys. It's not as if it's a necessity thing. It's not as if, oh, yeah, we're both really poor, so one of us has to work and the other has to stay home. It's the whole idea of, I really like being a superhero, so I don't really want to leave. And I kind of do this lawyer thing on the side that I don't think I did once this season. I suppose the Becky thing was kind of her lawyer job, wasn't it? But it combined with her superhero thing because they went and did all that stuff. But teleporting smoke bombs solved the problem immediately and the fact that no one raised them. And again, they could have thrown them in and said the range is only a few miles. Fine. But also, you know a speedster who can have you there in seconds. Yeah, I was just going to say. And he's not busy most of the time. And most of the time when he is around, it turns out he's not actually needed. No. Even if Barry is busy, ask Jay to give you a lift. Or Wally. Would it be too much time out of his day to run from Tibet or wherever he is? To give Cecile a lift to the countryside? Yeah, well, depending on what visual effects sequence it is used, sometimes speeders can run all over the face of the planet in a matter of seconds. They all can, yeah. But my point is, there was definite options that they didn't even pay lip service to that countered this problem. And that's the whole thing about world building. So you have the solutions to the problems at your fingertips, but you don't make use of them because you want it to be a domestic problem. 
The only way you get to turn it into a domestic problem is if you cross all those things that you've established off the list. We ran out of those smoke bombs. There was only a finite amount of them. We don't know how to make more. It'd be stupid, but I could at least buy into it some of the way. Yes, or Cecile has some kind of minor heart defect that means she can't be carried at super speed. Yeah, something like that. Even though she has been carried at super speed before. I was just trying to get into the mindset of one of the writers of this show and just not bother thinking about anything that's come before. Could you imagine being in the writer's room of The Flash and you start coming out the right, we're going to do this in this episode. Like, but what about those teleported smoke bombs? Get out. Then later in the episode, but we need Allegra to reach this location really quickly so that she can shoot someone with a beam of light. How about the teleporting smoke bombs? Great. Well done. Genius. You get a raise. Well done. You can write the episode. No. (laughs) I shouldn't have said anything. (laughs) But yeah, Becky, she was getting married and then was accused of killing her fiancé, which she didn't seem that bothered about. She seemed more bothered about the fact she might go to prison rather than he's dead. Only one problem at a time. Anything else is too complicated. Notice how it was just a very stripped-back version of the first episode of Daredevil. That problem. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I did feel really sorry for her when she was caked in mud, though, in her wedding dress. That was brutal. <laughs> Poor Becky. Should have had more of her. Maybe she should have been on a team of rogues. She would have at least tried to have fun with it. Well, she would have been a bit of a personality, which the others largely weren't. And then she's never seen again after that anyway. She's fine. And Cecile's fine, I guess. Even though she misses her train, but she's fine. And Allegra gets to live with her. That's another thing that happens. Again, because these people have absolutely no lives or friends and acquaintances out with the team. Pretty much. And I suppose we could bring in the fact that Allegra and Chester finally get together. I've actually praised this before, the fact that they were taking a bit slowly with them. They were both a bit awkward around each other. And for that reason, it wasn't happening because neither of them had the confidence to make that move. But I think they dragged it out for far too long. I think that is indicative of a larger problem in that generally when writers decide to to supporting characters in a show's ensemble into a relationship, it's usually because they can't think of anything else to do with them. And so pretty much their interactions beyond that revolve around the, the fact that they're in a relationship. Yeah, but I did enjoy how the Allegra and Chester friendship developed. The idea that they bond over just getting into D&D together. That was... Novel, I guess. Yes, something you don't often see, at least trying to be taken seriously. Yeah, although it does fall into the trope of it's unusual that she likes D&D because she's a hot girl. (sighs) Yes. Look at this hot woman. She is such a nerd. That's so unusual. Yeah, because it's a well-known fact that women need to fall below a certain level on some nebulous scale of quantifiable attractiveness for it to be plausible for them to have nerdy hobbies. Yeah. Even though we had Caitlin for so many years, who's a nerdy scientist. Yeah, but Caitlin has a frumpy dress sense, so she's not meant to be super hot, even though Daniel Panabaker objectively is. <laughs> but she gets to dress hotter as Killer Frost. Or Frost. No killer. Depends on what season you're watching. That's true. But that's about it for Allegra and Chester, really. They get together and then that's it. Yeah, because, like I said, that was pretty much all the ideas they had for them. What does Chester do this season? Absolutely nothing. Other than that. It did seem that at some point he was attempting to be some cut-rate Eddie Murphy, making really bad jokes that fall flat. I hadn't noticed it before this season, but that thing where he would say something and then he would echo it, that really got in my nerves this season, particularly. I don't think I even paid enough attention to even notice that. I guess it ties into his whole Twitch streaming origin. Possibly, yeah. That does make sense. Let's move on to the episode that had Nia in it. 
I think this episode was the one where I came to the realization that so much of the Flash involves Iris getting captured by something or stuck in something. In this episode, she gets stuck in a dream. In the Red Death episode, she gets stuck in something as well. Oh, she gets trapped with Ryan in the Red Death episodes. And then she gets trapped in a room in the following episode. So that's three instances in a very short period of time where Iris just gets caught in something. Which caused me to have a brief feature on the website, Captive Iris, where I just commented on how she was held captive. Although, like with Where's Wally, the novelty wore off pretty quickly and stopped doing it. Mostly because I would write the review and I would think, oh no, I never did that. Oh well. And then I wasn't going back because I was done with the episode. Just didn't want to think about it. But Nia came back anyway and Iris was in a dream with her because they're good friends now apparently because they went to brunch once that we didn't see. We didn't see this brunch because why would you? Why would you need to see or want to see such a thing? Crossovers in a shared universe. Nah, don't want to see that. So they're in this dream. Nia's dealing with the same anxiety she's always dealing with. Am I worthy for my powers? Even though she is definitively answered yes to that question several times by now but she has to answer it again and then iris's dream is about what if i lived a life of less responsibility she talked about how she loved being a barista at one point i never got that impression but okay it was kendra and legends that always talked about how she was a barista i used to be a barista that's what she said almost every episode remember that back in season one yeah because it's literally the only other point of character reference that she actually has <laughs> It was similar to Russell T. Davies constantly congratulating himself that he created a character that worked in a shop and then went travelling with an ageless time traveller. Yeah, look at these humble beginnings. Aren't we so proud of ourselves? But apparently Iris liked that because she didn't have to shoulder so much responsibility because she's worried about becoming a mother, she's worried about having a Pulitzer, she's worried about expanding her business, she's worried about all these things. So she's dreaming of a simpler life. I was kind of okay with that as an arc or a possible arc. But she doesn't really overcome it in any definitive way. She just wakes up and says, oh, my life's pretty good. I'm all right. Let's move on. Yeah, there wasn't any real comparison of how this life of simplicity that she daydreams about actually made her objectively happier. And if there had been some kind of exploration into that, then there could have been at least some meaningful conversation about which possibility she would truly prefer. Yeah, about responsibility, about growing up, about moving into a different life stage. All these things that people feel anxious about. Yeah, but again, it's just completely brushed aside. It's like, ah, okay, done with that now. Let's move on. I'm fine. Yeah. And Nia, of course, comes to the same conclusion of, yes, I should have these powers. And she levels them up as well, because everybody that appears in the Flash levels up their powers in some way. Except Diggle, who takes a significant step backwards. Diggle is the only one to leave the Flash less powerful than he arrived. He leaves with the Vin Diesel power of family, doesn't he? Yeah, that works. Let's go with that. He commits to family. It was a real shame. Although the Nia appearance was better than the Ryan appearance, I don't think she was used terribly well. And part of the problem is the fact that she's not all that well connected to these characters. Exactly. She doesn't really have a place here. There isn't any real previous link that her presence has to latch onto. And as a result of that it ends up with her just simply being there. Yeah, although she does tell Iris that she's her journalism hero, apparently. Yeah, because everyone here will go on to lead incredibly significant lives whose exploits will echo down the centuries. Also, wasn't Kara Nia's journalism hero? Yeah, but she wasn't as good as Iris, apparently. Despite the fact that we've never really seen any evidence that Iris is actually good at her job. Oh, I actually have this compulsion when I'm watching films and TV shows. If any piece of text appears on a screen, then I have to read it. I just need to know what everything says that appears there. So whenever one of Iris's articles appears on screen, I'll always read as much of it as is legible. And 
it is all incredibly prosaic the way the way that it's written. Well, she's not really reporting news, is she? She's writing emotional think pieces because they tie in thematically to whatever the episode is talking about. But that's not news, is it? Exactly. It's not journalism. That's glorified blogging. Yeah. But she has an empire for some reason. Yes, and they wins her appeal at her. Yeah. For writing a saccharine piece about the Red Death attack, where she couldn't really talk much about it because why would she know about it? Exactly, because it have people questioning how she has all these insider details. Yeah, although outside of on-screen text, I don't think they've ever really highlighted that Iris is especially bad at her job. They just haven't really shown her doing it in any meaningful way. Whereas with Kara, they constantly showed that she wasn't very good at her job. <laughs> Such as she would be writing a story... And then someone else would do five minutes of research and learn something that would have been really easy to find out if you did five minutes of research, which happened more than once. In some cases, it would be, you stick this person's name into Google and you'll come up with some of the stuff that she missed. That's how glaring it was. And yet we are supposed to believe that she's this highly respected journalist. Yeah. And since we're on the subject, they talk about Cara in the season in the context of she attends brunch. So there's no chat on how the world's adjusting to the fact that she's abandoned her double life, or how she's adjusting to it. That actually didn't occur to me, but that's a very valid point. Nia's there, she could have said something about it. Yeah, it was a bit weird at first, but people just stopped caring eventually. You would expect it's maybe not that big a deal, I guess. Yeah, because I think that's probably how it would work. Because to begin with, it would be pretty much all that anyone would be talking about. And then after a while, it would just become just another thing that happened. It's something that people know, and once they realise that it doesn't actually directly affect their lives then they just get on with things and forget about it yeah but we saw Nia again and it was a shame that she didn't really do much of any importance it was I do really like Nia I think she's an interesting character and so to see her one more time but not in any way that reminds me of why I like her was massively disappointing and I don't think they should have had her turn up to connect to her powers in some way that she hadn't before they should have had Nia turn up at the very top of her game to help Iris solve a problem. So she should have been the supporting player in Iris's indecision about progressing with her business or growing up or whatever it is she needed to get over that was haphazardly referred to in the way that her dreams were structured. So this should have been Nia as the expert of dream interpretation and more powerful than she's ever been or more knowledgeable than she's ever been in the dream with Iris trying to encourage her to embrace reality. But that's not what was happening at all. She was there to go through an arc. We'd seen her go through half a dozen times. And for anybody that watches The Flash who didn't watch Supergirl, of which there'll be a lot of viewers that didn't really check in on Supergirl, we know that the audience is divided as the shows went on and grew further apart anyway. So basically what you get is you have this character turning up going through an arc but you don't know who that character is and the episode doesn't do a really good job of telling you much about her so they should have framed her in a very different way she should have been the expert yeah she's someone who should have had a specific presence and a specific purpose and have who she was defined far more strongly like when barry turned up in supergirl that first time he was the experienced hero that could help Kara deal with the problem she was facing at that moment in time Exactly. Because that's what crossovers are really not supposed to do, but that's one reason to do a crossover. You bring in this character that can help deal with a situation in a way that our characters can't. But instead, they're just stuck in a dream for a bit. Nia has to embrace her abilities, and then they wake up and everything's fine. And that's it. Yeah, so that's all we can say about Nia. Shame. That's the last Supergirl reference we'll ever see, probably. Shame. The next episode was Barry and Iris stuck in a room. 
because they were getting electricians into Star Labs for some reason? Was there not some nebulous excuse about baby proofing or some nonsense or making it safer for a baby that will be running about? Some nonsense. Something like that, yeah. Or something like a safety certificate needed to be renewed. They were getting work done anyway. Yeah. Again, rewriting the season. Wouldn't it have been a good idea to establish that as I'm starting to think about the Flash Museum? We need to get some work done on our infrastructure here in order to support the fact that this will one day be the Flash Museum. Yeah, because this is a thing that exists in the future that we need to make come about, so we should think about how we're going to do that. Also, the Red Death thing. There was a previous season where they talked about how brutal and catastrophic the Red Death was, and then when they finally get around to doing the story... It was anything but. <laughs> so that's another misstep on their part. Again, I've forgotten that but I remember when you saw this episode and you messaged me and said how you'd worked out who the secret villain was because it's the electrician that didn't know what a f- junction box was or a fuse box. I bet they thought they were being really, really subtle with that line. Something that was just snuck in there. People think enough about it then they might have an inkling of what's going on. Upon hearing someone who's a supposed professional but also a stranger who you are letting into your sub-secret research facility then says something which casts serious doubt on their identity. Why doesn't that not immediately raise several thousand red flags? Other than the characters are idiots. It's actually insulting to just throw something like that in there, ignore it, and then expect people to go along with it. Yeah, stupid. It's kind of a time loop episode, isn't it? As in they're stuck in some kind of pocket dimension, I think they call it, where they can't leave the vicinity of the room that they're in. Yeah, I might have found it vaguely interesting if if they'd thrown in a little bit uh, about four-dimensional physics and the notion of a hypercube or some random rambling as to how something like that might physically exist within the currently understood laws of reality. Just because I I tend to overthink things like that. And I like thinking up justifications for apparent possibilities, even when the show itself doesn't bother. Valid. And the solution to the problem was, see that thing you stole? Maybe put it back? That'll probably solve the problem. All these people that died won't be dead anymore and basically nothing we did in the last 45 minutes means anything to anybody. We were just stuck in here for a bit and then it's fine. We had some clocks appear and stuff. Although I liked the villain costume when she revealed herself. She did have a good costume. I'll give her that, yeah. It was very kitschy and camp, but it was very fun. And the actual problem itself, I think if they hadn't bothered with a villain and made it some kind of just sci-fi problem, it might have been a bit more interesting. It's something that The Flash has messed with over the years, isn't it? The whole notion of it could just be a sci-fi show where the characters aren't necessarily fighting a villain every week. They might just get caught in a random circumstance that they need to deal with. You know, like in Star Trek, they're stuck in an anomaly. Nobody's shooting at them. They're just trapped somewhere for a bit and they have to get out. They have to deal with some kind of bizarre problem that has nothing to do with someone setting it off. Exactly. You can't blast a nebula with photon torpedoes. I mean, you can. It just won't do anything. (coughs) Basically, creating problems that Barry can't solve by running at them or running around them or running near them. Or run a very specific distance away and then throw a supersonic punch at. Yeah, and that's kind of what this episode did, except they threw in a pointless villain twist at the end. Exactly. There wasn't a need for what was going on to be the nefarious work of an individual. It could have been a thing that was happening. Yeah. They brought in these electricians. Someone tripped over an invention that was lying around in in Star Lab somewhere. They didn't know what it was, and it got them stuck in some kind of loop that they couldn't get out of. And it was closing in on them or something. They had to solve the problem somehow. Maybe with each iteration, the physical area that they have to work in gets gradually smaller. Yeah, until it crushes them. Which then gives them a finite number of times they can go around the loop trying different things to get out of it. Could have been a fun little puzzle episode. Yeah. Instead it was nonsense. Just another villain 
stealing something or whatever. Some of the wacky civil servants were quite fun, though, in their own way. I don't know if they're civil servants in the US, but that's what we would call them here. Government employees. I really know very little about any kind of employment designations. But one thing that stood out to me was when all the inspectors showed up, it was, when you asked for this to be done, it triggered all these other things to be done, so we've just turned up unannounced. That's not how these things work. Yes, but if we acknowledge that, then everything would be far less dramatic. Because we can't really pay attention to how things actually function in any plausible way, because then that wouldn't lead to nearly as much drama. No, of course not. I'm just thinking about the potential this episode could have had. It could have called back to some season one stuff. It's something they have to deal with without Barry using his speed, and he can't let the others find out about his speed. There is a scene in that episode where he reveals that he's the Flash to these people that are around and just hopes that they'll keep the secret. They end up forgetting, so he ends up getting absolved of that decision, but it leans into that trope of, why does Barry even have a secret identity at this point? <laughs> he just tells everybody who he is, at all times. But yeah, the problem is solved by putting the thing back that was stolen in the future. So, great, I guess. And as we have seen on numerous occasions throughout this show, at absolutely no other point has Causing Ripples in Time had any ongoing ontological issues that require subsequent dealing with. No, none at all. Although this episode did perhaps have growth for Barry when he says, I'm going to run to the future to find out how he got out of it and then we'll just copy that. And then he runs and he can't run to the future for some reason. And then he says, what was I thinking? Running to the future never ends well. Finally, it took you how many years to learn that lesson? At this point, it's almost a metafictional joke. Which they could have exploited by Iris going, that's what I've been trying to tell you. (laughs) You idiot. But no, there's no point in having any character beats like that because that might make the show fun and interesting. And we certainly can't have that. We can't have conflict. We can't have anything like that. Everyone has to just mildly argue for a little while and then just get along afterwards. That's what happens. That's all the filler episodes done with, at least. The next episode was the return of Oliver Queen. So the question I've got here is, do you think Oliver's return was worthwhile or did it devalue his death? I was totally wrong when I was predicting that It was going to be like he did with Snart and went to just pick him up at a point in the timeline before he died. It is actually post-Spectre Oliver, so it's a progression in a way. Do you think it was good or do you think it made his death worse by association? Surprisingly, I don't actually. I was actually fully expecting to hate this episode, precisely because of the opinion that point where we ultimately left Oliver at the conclusion of Arrow should have been it, the end of his story. But bringing him back in this way, acknowledging that he is still a spectre, and as a result of that, he still has responsibilities. I actually think it was a genuinely good way to justify bringing him back, but also not cheapening the sacrifice that he made during Crisis, both times. Yes, both deaths that he had during crisis. And I have always been of the opinion that Oliver is a far, far more interesting character than Barry is. And I think this episode really hammered that home, because he was far and away the most compelling aspect of it. My first thought when I was watching this episode when Oliver showed up and he had a grasp on the situation and he knew what was going on, I was just thinking, finally an adult. We have an adult (laughs) amongst us. Someone who's actually thinking things through. When he showed up and he was like, Barry, what have you done this time? Yes, it's Oliver who wrote this episode. Promote that man. That actually has been one of my favourite running jokes throughout the Arrowverse. What have you done now, Barry? Something's gone wrong. Must be Barry's fault. Again. I do wonder how much of what worked about this episode is down to Stephen Amell, though, because he said he had some, not demands, but some requests that he stipulated as being a condition of him coming on this show. 
for the final season. So it seems like he got everything he wanted. And I'm not going to advocate for the fact that an actor who plays a character should get everything they want or know the character as well as they think they do. Look at Picard, for example. Patrick Stewart got a lot of his own way there and a lot of his own way was wrong. Yes, unless we forget Superman 4, The Quest for Peace, where Christopher Reeve decided that he could write Superman better than professional writers. Superman would just get rid of nukes, all the nukes. That's not a problem at all. Him making that unilateral decision and getting to do so because he's so powerful, that's something that would happen. Yes, it totally makes sense. Absolutely thing the character would do. But anyway, Oliver, he was back. And you're Barry's second 30th birthday because they had that plot point where he... (laughs) became younger for some reason in an earlier episode, which I'd forgotten about. It was a good job there was a flashback to remind me because it was so important that Barry is like two years younger than he was before. That's the thing. They can really focus on the tiniest minutia of continuity when it actually matters to them. But it's usually a situation that doesn't matter. Although it sort of fed into what he was dealing with in that episode. You had that bit where he was dead and Oliver was like, I can send you back to life, but... You have to want to go back to life, and apparently you don't. And then Barry's like, yeah, but I do want to be alive. I'd rather be alive than dead. And Oliver's like, nah, you're definitely not, because you're not alive right now, and you would be if you really wanted to be alive. And then he has a quick speech about, it's not fair that people die around me and I'm somehow younger than I was before, and other people sacrifice themselves for me and all that stuff. And it feeds into the very notion of Oliver's sacrifice in the first place, as in he recognised that Barry... And he doesn't mention Kara here, even though he should. But he sacrificed himself because he recognised the M2 people as being the best of them. And it's better that they continue than he does. So Oliver comes from that place of experience to say, I gave up my life for you because you're better than me. And the world is a better place with you in it. And everybody else who sacrifices themselves for you knows that too. I actually quite liked that as a thematic through a line, except it was resolved with a quick speech and Barry was like, yeah, cool, I'm awesome, let's get back to life here. <laughs> so I was surprised at how long it took for Oliver to actually appear in the episode. I was too, actually. Obviously, his return is why people are going to be excited about watching it, but then to make them wait to actually see him seems a little counterintuitive. Yeah, although arguably it could be, oh yeah, they made us wait for it, so it was a good decision because it kept the anticipation going. Though, unfortunately, it did also force us to put up with more Bloodwork, who is one of the most boring villains this show has ever produced. Yeah, he party crashes Barry's second 30th birthday. He knows that the multiverse exists somehow, and he wants to go infect it somehow. And he does. Or he tries. Yeah, because, as you mentioned earlier, everyone who reappears on the Flash levels up their powers. Never mind how he learned of this. Oh, God, no. Why he wants to do this how his motivation has changed, why he's suddenly so committed to fixing the multiverse, all of that. Bloodwork was just your moustache-twirling villain again. I think you said it. He was introduced to be a space filler until Crisis. Yeah, it was nice how he always seemed to me. But he did start out as being this sympathetic, tragic, fallen-from-grace, well-meaning doctor, didn't he? He did, yeah. And if there had been more of a reminder of that, then his presence might not have been so arbitrary. Yeah. It's like a bad comic book in a way, as in they bring back a villain just to sell copies of the comic, but they don't really do anything with the character that means anything. Exactly. There was some interesting stuff in there, though. Wally's fractured sense of identity was quite an interesting thread to at least tug on, although it brought up something that probably should have been raised years ago. Because I like the idea that when Wally was infected with whatever Bloodworks stuff is called, the black goo, he 
turned on Barry because he hated him for stealing his life, essentially. And I feel like that's something that Wally should have been dealing with early on. Well, you're living this existence that I should have had. (laughs) That would have been a great source of conflict in the early days when Barry was trying to train him and things. Again, in a better written show, that would have been essentially the source of the animosity that existed from Wally to Barry, instead of Wally just being impatient and Barry being rubbish at being a teacher. That was ultimately what their dynamic boiled down to. But it could have been the, I don't like listening to you because you live with my dad. I was dealing with my terminally ill mother, all that stuff. They bring that up here. But it just turns out to be a function of his infection. It's not actually something he believes, which is really limiting. I know it's a cliche, but I always like the idea of this made me say things that I actually feel but wouldn't have said otherwise. Exactly, and to not actually follow through with that, it completely cheapens it and makes any of the actually quite good points being raised completely meaningless because it's decreed that they doesn't actually believe it. So... Therefore, anything that he says on the subject can be disregarded. During that whole conflict, I'm just thinking, oh, it would be really great to cover that six years ago. That would have been actually very good, but they're not, because nobody could think of it at the time, I guess. But it did make a lot of sense. You could see from Wally's point of view that Barry has swooped in and stolen his life from childhood. And the fact that he couldn't have had any notion that uh, what he was doing actually makes it even more tragic because it's almost like he was just in the right place at the right time for it to happen. Obviously, the circumstances in which it happened were incredibly tragic and traumatising, but that's not going to factor into Wally's reasoning. No, and it doesn't have to because it can be just an irrational feeling. Exactly, because jealousy and resentment often are irrational. Yeah, and all they would have really needed to do to give it some kind of meaning would be have a bit of a button on the episode where... Wally goes up to Barry and says, I didn't mean what I said. And Barry says, yeah, I think on some level you kind of did. And that's okay. I get it. Unfortunately, that requires a show far more mature than this one. And then you also had that weird bit towards the start of the episode where Wally talks about, I've been looking at the future or alternate futures because I'm trying to find out how I achieved enlightenment in the future. We've all seen the cliche trope-ridden stuff where the whole idea of achieving enlightenment's this journey that you need to go on where there's no shortcuts and you have to achieve it on your own by stripping away all the stuff that's holding you back, all that stuff. That's the common way of people achieving that kind of serenity within themselves so in theory a lesson for wally is you can't cheat you can't look at the future and find out how you did it because the way that you do it will just be hard work and centering yourself or whatever but it's when he asks barry for help and barry's like eh, nah i'm not gonna help you what are you on about but also the fact that he doesn't say anything about the fact that wally is mucking around with time not that he can judge yeah that infuriated me absolutely no sense of irony whatsoever no but you could have had barry say what are you doing looking at the future you shouldn't be doing that and then wally hit back with well don't you do it all the time why do you get to do it and i'm not allowed to do it again resentment picking up on flaws that other characters have yeah and you could then have barry conceding yeah you know what you're right i have done that and i was wrong to do it i shouldn't have done that and I've learned better. Also, to achieve enlightenment, you shouldn't cheat and look at the future. Or maybe Oliver tells him that, I don't know. Oliver seems to know what enlightenment is. You'd think as a spectator, he'd have some idea. Yeah, that whole cosmic awareness thing. So much great potential there that they just never made use of. It, arguably, it's too late, but they could have at least done something in this episode with it. Yeah, and instead we just get a Nocturnal's CGI-heavy battle. Pretty much. The actual scene I was talking about that should have happened between Wally and Barry reminded me of an episode of Angel where Gunn had to say that he hates Angel in order to 
diffuse a situation. And then at the end, he says, all that stuff I said, I didn't really mean it. I was just saying it to deal with this. And Angel says, no, you meant every word of it, but that's okay. I like that in Angel where it was, I know that you hate me on some primal level, but that's okay. I get it. The random thing it reminded me of was actually an episode of Sylvester McCoy, Doctor Who. I'm not going to get this reference, but go on. It's a saga called The Curse of Fenric. Notion to get into too many details, but plot story basically involves psychic vampires and the notion that vampires are held at bay by faith. Not specifically religious faith, though that does work, but just faith in something. And there's a moment where this powerful vampire was being held at bay by Ace's faith in the Doctor, but the vampire was actually going to go after Fenris, the villain. So to actually facilitate that, the Doctor had to completely destroy Ace's faith in him, basically by saying everything about her that she was insecure about, that she wasn't really worth travelling with, and he just picked her up because he felt sorry for her. There were things that he might not have necessarily thought, but there were things that, that on some small niggling part of her brain, Ace herself was afraid of, and then saying that I brought it out. But at the point of doing so being a way to defeat the villain. Yeah, that makes sense. That was just a random tangent brought to you from my memories as a seven-year-old. <laughs> yeah, valid. I referenced Angel. It's an oldie but a goodie as well. But despite the myriad problems this episode had it was so good to see oliver again it was i really enjoyed it i especially liked one final time getting to hear him growl you have failed this city even if it didn't make any sense in context oh hell no absolutely none whatsoever but it was still fun to hear it it's worth noting that this episode was directed by danielle panabaker she got the best episode of the season i noticed that yeah she got one good thing this season then which we'll get to oh we will yes we will Oh my god. I mean, the thing is, Stephen Amell is always, maybe not always, but once he got into the groove of the character, he was always immensely watchable. He clearly enjoys playing that character and getting to see him do it one more time was great. I don't care how contrived it was that he's the spectre, but he's just back as Green Arrow and he's going to shoot a magic arrow into this portal to stop blood work. It can't have his cosmic omnipotence because there are rules. Things need to work in specific ways and because we always liked seeing green arrow beating on people exactly because it's what he's best at even if the action sequence wasn't that great and Stephen amell's stunt double was painfully apparent <laughs> in places but it was just good to see oliver queen just tearing his way through a gang of mooks once again it's been a exactly, while yeah and i actually didn't realize how much i've missed it even though he was wearing his crappy specter influenced green arrow costume well i suppose there needed to be at least some nod to his present condition. Yeah, I was okay with it. Oh, same. And him and Diggle got the goodbye they never got to have, which was perfect, I think. I think they did it so well. Yeah, I agree. It's one of the few, if not only, genuinely moving moments in the entire season. Yeah, it was very good. And the rules, as you talked about, were quite funny. The whole, I can only intervene in the corporeal world when the multiverse is in danger. And then when that's wrapped up, I can stick around for a party, I guess. <laughs> Don't worry, universe, the multiverse is still in danger. I have to drink these beers. This doesn't count as intervening because this is fun, not work. And then him and Barry going for a drink, reminiscent of when they did that. Was it the end of Invasion that they did that? Just the two of them? Possibly. I can't recall exactly. End of one of the crossovers anyway. I think it only happened in one of them. I'm sure it was Invasion. They had a drink. And when Oliver asked Barry if he was paying... I thought you were a billionaire. Can't take it with you. <laughs> Such a good line. They had to ruin it by him turning around saying, just remember, Barry, the lightning chose you. Yeah. Turns out I did it. This whole time, I did it. He didn't say that. But it would have been funny if he did, though. And then he does a wink that only the audience see to make it clear that he's just messing with Barry. But Barry's going to go and think this because he's an idiot. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> 
best episode of the season, hands down. Even though Absolutely. it was clunky, but the Green Arrow, Oliver Queen stuff was all very good. It wasn't a great episode by any stretch, but it was good in all the ways that mattered, I think. It goes back to the notion of when you're surrounded by so many bad examples of media or mediocre examples of media, something that's actually quite good is amplified significantly because it's better than everything else. Something that may only be kind of average, looks spectacular in comparison to when everything else is just so utterly pedestrian. Yeah, because I think about these things, I was thinking about the timelines of all the stuff we know about. Barry asked Oliver if he was going to look up Felicity while he was around, and he said that he wasn't going to for some reason, but he's also watching over her all the time anyway. And baby Mia, should be infant Mia now, I guess, can do the salmon ladder apparently. So he's keeping an eye on his family, fine. But the ending of Arrow obviously shows him and Felicity reuniting in the afterlife or wherever they are, which is, I guess, in the future of this. Does Oliver still exist on linear time? I guess he must. I would like to I also remember when Felicity decided to go join Oliver in the afterlife. Wasn't she quite a bit older? Yeah, that was in that future timeline where we're showing an arrow, which now doesn't happen because we saw what Star City's future looks like. So it's a different Felicity. It doesn't make any sense. Oh, God. I suppose it doesn't have to make sense because we're on Earth Prime now and it plays out differently. Yeah, let's go with that. But I guess at some point, a slightly older Felicity who, by the way, looks older than any of the older people in the future episode of this show, but we'll get to that. (laughs) But a slightly older Felicity will just decide to abandon this mortal coil so that she can be with Oliver when she's in her 50s or something. I think it was about then, yeah. It's not something we're supposed to really think about, and it's something that was in Arrow, but they mentioned the whole, yeah, I can't go see Felicity because Emily Bett Rickards isn't in this episode, and that's why I can't go see her. But Diggle is. I can see Diggle, it's fine. To be fair, he was here. There's not much we could do about that, and... They rub salt in the wound by saying you were right to abandon that box. Really? Okay, so you're still trying to convince us that it was a good thing we never got to see Diggle as a Green Lantern. Yeah, did they not try to recontextualise it as a trickster box or something like that? If they did, I'd forgotten that. I'm sure that was mentioned somewhere. Maybe I'm wrong, but again, it's pointless. Like I said, they should have still had one instance of Diggle being Green Lantern and then he can give it up. Wow, this is amazing. I can't be doing this. He could have done that, but he didn't can thank Flash for ruining that for us, I guess, as a show. Don't know who made that decision, but they did. Well, why pick how about my lifetime? Yeah. But anyway, it's great to see Oliver. I think that's what we should take away from that. Yes, definitely. Before we get on to the final arc, I want to discuss Keon just a little bit, because she's important-ish in the final arc, so it'd be good to contextualise that now. The introduction of the Keon character I found really bizarre for a number of reasons. Infuriating. One thing is, it's the final season... And you have gotten rid of a character that's been there since day one and replaced her with someone that's bland and blank and vaguely defined. And I'm guessing that Danielle Panabaker wasn't happy with it either because she really wasn't trying. (laughs) Her acting was bad. That could be a combination of, this is ridiculous, why have they done this to me? Or the fact that the character was so poorly written that there was nothing to perform. We want her to be a bit flaky and a bit down with nature and a bit strange. Okay, so how do you do that? You deliver every line in a monotone, practically. I found that really annoying that Caitlin sat out the final season. I found it mildly interesting that you had this whole, we need to get Caitlin slash Frost back and we need to put Keon in the machine in order to do that. And everybody slowly coming to the realisation that Actually, this should be up to Keon because she's a living person who should decide whether she gets to live or die. Sort of the reverse Tuvix, as I would like to call it. Someone has created this living being that we are now kind of responsible for in our own ways. 
And we don't get to decide whether that being gets to continue to exist because they do now. So therefore, what Caitlin and Frost might want is immaterial because it's now up to Keon who is alive. We can't be murderers, which, like I say, is the reverse Tuvix. For those who don't know, there was an episode of Star Trek Voyager where two characters combined into one and then Janeway made the unilateral decision to kill the new character that was created by combining the two and get her old friends back. And she was never condemned for it in any way. Well, she was in the episode, but never after that. Nobody ever brought it up again. Because this was 90s, and recurring to the status quo at the end of the episode was standard. Yeah, but the approach in that dilemma was correct here, is what I'm saying. I'm not saying it was interesting, but it was correct. And it was slightly compelling to have that debate play out, and then eventually have someone realise, hang on a minute, this ain't up to us. We would all like Caitlin and Frost back, but tough, because Keon's here now and she has a vote. In fact, she's the only vote. No one else gets to make a vote. That's fine. But the fact that you sideline Caitlin and they do acknowledge that she's dead. They do say that the decision she made killed her, but they don't mourn her at all. It's like the very acknowledgement that she's dead is all that they needed to move past the event. That's not how grief works. That's not how loss works. And when you look at The Flash and other shows in the Arrowverse, they have actually done a very measured and varied approach to grief over the various shows and seasons. So it surprises me that they dropped the ball on this one. Even Frost's death, I thought, was handled fairly well in terms of the aftermath of it. Yeah, because there actually was one. They were acknowledging it. They were dealing with it. Yeah, Barry was building a snowman on Mount Everest in her honour or something like that, and everybody was finding a way to honour her in their own way, which for Chester was making a snow globe with her suit in it. But it is something, and also you never see it again. Usually you set up these things so that you can throw someone through it at some point, <laughs> which didn't happen. They did a lot of glass shattering in this season, but that wasn't one of the casualties. It was kind of forgotten about, actually. So Keon starts out as being this weird anomaly that doesn't understand the way the world works, and they gradually reveal that she has a connection to nature. She's able to divine that Iris is pregnant, for example, and she talks to plants because she's weird. And her hair has a blue streak in it because, of course, it does. Because why not? Because, yeah, exactly, why not? And then she gets ice powers at one point, and then through no development whatsoever, you see that her powers now allow her to turn into some weird wispy stuff that allows her to travel. And then eventually she's revealed to be a goddess. My question is, how do you put Caitlin in a machine that's designed to resurrect Frost, so designed to resurrect someone with ice powers, and end up creating a elemental goddess? Yeah, I think the physics and biochemistry on that has been a little fudged. It doesn't even pretend to make the slightest bit of sense. And then you had Mark sniffing about or trying to act on an attraction he had that was a latent attraction to Frost. They never addressed the fact that she is a couple of weeks old at this point, technically. It's just this new character that you had in the final season that they didn't know what to do with. Which makes it a baffling creative decision. Do the production team hate Daniel Panabaker? Is that what it is? You have to wonder sometimes. I find it quite interesting. In seeing some of the stuff that Daniel Panabaker was posting about the show coming to an end, uh, when she was talking about everything that she was grateful about from her time on the show, from friends that she made and the opportunity to direct and greatly further her career and whatnot. Absolutely nothing that she said that she was thankful for involved her time in front of the camera. And she was quite vocal about 
having no idea what was going on with her characters over the years. When it came to the Killer Frost arc, she had no idea what the hell was going on. So things understandable because it was clear the writers didn't either. They were making it up as they went along. They sort of stumbled onto something when they separated them, when they made it clear that there were two people, Caitlin and Frost, but that's not how it started. No. When it first started, it was basically her suddenly manifesting metahuman ice powers. There was absolutely no hint that that manifestation also involved a separate personality coming out because it was demonstrably Caitlin. Yeah, she was just a bit crazed for some reason, which led her to working with Savitar. Again, for some reason. And it was during the Cicada arc they reveal that Frost is not a metahuman, which means that she can use her powers around Cicada, which ended up coming to very little, really. But that was a distinction that they made. The idea of Frost predates metahumans and there was this whole thing that her father did or whatever. Again, it was more nonsense. The reason I mentioned that is because a big end of episode reveal was we've done some tests on you. You're not human. You're not metahuman. You're something else. We already had that. (laughs) Frost was something else. You never explained what that something else was, really. But she was that something else. Literally, the very purpose of her existence. At some point. Not all times, but at some point. And then they reveal that she's some elemental goddess and she ends the show by casting off her mortal form because apparently that's necessary. So what happened there? Was she inhabited by a goddess that was just looking for a vessel at that point? Did they create one? We still don't know if they created or awakened the forces. They never properly explained that. So you've introduced this character in your final season. You don't really have a clear line of thought as to what she is or what her purpose is. And you spend a lot of time just really not making her worthwhile within the context of the show that she's in. I remember there was one episode where her entire appearance for its entire runtime was literally just standing in the corner and smiling. <laughs> and then you had that bit where Mark was trying to turn her into Frost by doing all the stuff that Frost would have wanted to do, even though it's stuff that Keon doesn't want to do. That was all nonsense. I hated Mark. Stupid chill blame. Why was he here? Were they really struggling for main characters this season? If he's the, the best they could come up with? It's just a nothing character. Oh, he's nothing, yeah. I find it quite interesting, actually. That in the comics, there have been four separate children characters, but they have all been so insignificant that nobody has bothered to give any of them an actual name. <laughs> so this one's just Mark Blaine. Which is corny enough in itself. And he never wears a shirt. Maybe he went to the gym a lot and just wanted to show it off. Although, to be fair, I think it's Captain Boomerang does make reference to that. <laughs> yes. So that's the thing. So yeah, Keown was confusing. And then Caitlin gets brought back at the end anyway. That was weird. Which just reinforces the question of what was the point of her? I remember when she just kind of appeared and there was all these random details about who she was and what she could do. I was trying to figure out what they were doing with it. At one point when they were doing the whole thing about her being connected to nature and and having this affinity with plant life, I was actually wondering if that was meant to be a kind of reference to the character Daniel Panabaker played in Sky High when she was like 18 or something. Oh, I've never seen that. It's actually not too bad. Well, basically, the idea is that her character is this shy, introverted teenage girl who has the power to control plant life. And I just thought it might be some kind of reference to that for some reason. And then when it was mentioned about her being aware of matter at an atomic level, I actually thought that she might have been some really bizarre reworking of Element Girl, who is basically this really obscured superhero who 
I only actually know ever existed because Neil Gaiman once used her in an issue of Sandman. Her thing was effectively being able to transmute elements at a molecular level, which turned out wasn't really ever that useful, which is probably why she never appeared very much. The point is, though, that there was never really any set path to how they were developing her or what they were planning to do with her. She was just this presence who had a random assortment of abilities that each came out whenever it was pertinent to the plot. And then after was just being hand-waved away, oh, she's this power of nature, she's this goddess, therefore she can do anything because she doesn't have limits because she's this natural force or some nonsense. But it feeds into the larger issue that the show has when it comes to power levels that we touched on earlier with the fact that Barry is, in theory, infinitely fast or as good as at this point, and they never use that. But everybody's insanely powerful. So I don't understand what the distinction between metahuman, goddess, force is, because they all seem to be on a par with each other. So what makes a goddess different to the forces, for example? They are forces of nature, but she is nature. It wasn't even vaguely defined. It just wasn't even addressed. No. If you told me Cecile was a goddess by their logic, I would believe you. (laughs) Yeah, because... Her power levels were just getting ridiculous. Beyond ridiculous. I could only assume that that we were to take Goddess as being some kind of upper level, purely on account of Kion seemingly being able to do the things that she can do with absolutely no effort whatsoever. She can just perform these ridiculous feats with basically a single thought. Like when she kills Mark in order to get this negative speed force out of him and then just brings him back immediately. Oh God, I hate that scene so much. <laughs> Not because he was being killed, because I genuinely didn't care. But it seemed to try to make it this really emotional moment that we were losing some beloved figure who, who'd been around for years and all grown to look forward to seeing and adore the presence of, whereas he's just this obnoxious idiot who's hanging around for some reason and just doesn't do anything except tell everybody else that they're doing everything wrong. Whose pattern is, he'll betray them, Barry will forgive him, and then they'll repeat that dance until, well, until the show ends, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, the goddess reveal, it didn't mean anything to me. And you had Speed Force Nora talking about how she was the key to it or whatever. It's all just garbage. And it does speak to the crutches that the writing team on this show fall back on. We've written ourselves into a corner, so we're just going to have someone manifest an insane power to get us out of it. That is a trick that doesn't even work the first time. But then to keep on pulling out as if it's something accepted, it just shows how little effort they're putting into what they're putting out. Absolutely. Now that we've contextualised Keon, let's get on to the final arc, which was called A New World, and they had four parts to it. And it could have really just been an episode and a half for all the got up to. The first episode dealt with Barry once again going back to the night his mother died, there's a elaborate queuing system outside the house at this point. <laughs> they just have to wait their turn. Wait, see, your mother died. You have to wait. Sorry, mate. There's a thousand of us here at the moment. To be fair, it seems that crisis is streamlined at some point, so it's less crowded. The whole post-crisis timeline seems to account for the changes they make to it here, although they don't explicitly address that, even though they should have. But in a final season, the idea of Barry going back to this foundational moment in his life and finally accepting it is a reasonable idea, except we saw him except that it was something that happened to him seasons ago. Exactly. And returning to exactly the same plot point, just for the sole reason of making it play out ever so slightly differently, it does not make it more meaningful. It's not a resolution to anything. It's 
just repetition. It's tedious repetition. Yeah, because they didn't do anything meaningful to change it, because he spends time with his parents, who are just radiant saints, aren't they? (laughs) They're not real people. They're the idealised version of them that he's been seeing all these years. And you would think that an experience like this would be to help Barry realise that his parents were people who were flawed. Maybe he goes back to that night and he sees that his parents were arguing about something. I don't know. There could be some tension there that he wasn't aware of as a child because now he's an adult and he understands these things. Plus, he's about to become a parent himself. So it'd be good to see that this idyllic relationship that he looks up to isn't as idyllic as he thought it was. Except no, because he still has this idealised hero worship of his parents being such utter paragons of virtue that they can literally do no wrong. And that stops them from being people. It makes them ideas, it makes them concepts. Yeah, you could have it that one thing that he didn't know and his dad kept from all these years was that they were looking into splitting up or something at that point. Anything. Yeah, just something that can be in any way emotionally related to. Yeah, and instead of arriving at the very moment that he plans to kill Barry's mother, Thawne apparently arrives a few hours earlier and just decides to hang out for a bit until it's time for him to attack. I honestly don't care anymore. (laughs) I stopped caring years ago, but to have to specifically not care about something again really reminded me how little I no longer care. I will say that I liked Barry's relationship to Thawne in that episode, as in he seems to have let go of the hatred that defined at least his side of their antagonistic connection. When he offers them the opportunity to walk away, because he says, you'll win this battle, but I'll win the war, effectively. And this is the start of your downfall, this event. That shows growth for Barry. It's a good example of that. However, it's a bad example of meddling with the timeline, because... If Thon walks away, you've just created another flashpoint, Barry. Remember that? And remember how a couple of episodes ago you finally accepted that mucking around the timeline doesn't ever yield positive results? Yeah. You could have easily recontextualised that conversation by Barry confronting him and saying, you could have walked away from this, but your obsession got in your way and I'm glad I didn't become you with my obsession that resulted from this. But you're stuck on these rails effectively, so you're screwed. But let's do this. Because we've always been building to this point. Let's do this. But it's not really what they do. They go for a beer. They chat for a bit. And then they do the fight at the end. Which again is inconsistent. Because we saw in the flashback in season one. That reverse flash exits a portal. Barry is hot on his heels. And they fight in the house. And again they could have played with the alternate timeline. The Earth Prime side of it. Where you maybe see reverse flash coming out of a portal and then not followed by Barry, and Barry goes, oh crap, what? Am I not supposed to be there? And then he realises that he has to step in. That at least would have been vaguely interesting. Because they were obviously trying to do a full circle moment where he's the one that warns his season one self to not get involved, forgetting that this isn't the Barry that does that. (laughs) Or at least it wasn't in the original version of this. I'm okay with Earth Prime being a different timeline with things playing out slightly differently but they also needed to address it in some way in order to highlight that it was different and why this Barry has to feed into this full circle moment. But yeah but as you mentioned when you've had multiple such full circle moments then a further iteration of it just doesn't mean anything. No. It's just retreading exactly what you've done before. And it just reminded me that the potential that we never got to see fulfilled was seeing the original timeline 
We've never seen that. Because the whole time we've been watching this show, it's been taking place in an alternate timeline that Thawne had referred to on occasion. He talks about how Barry became the Flash later, under the same circumstances, but it was later on. And there's the implication that the other Flash is a lot more seasoned and competent from that timeline. But he's gone now. That timeline got overwritten by the one that was created by Thawne trying to kill his mother. Or trying to kill young Barry and then ending up killing his mother. I can't believe they never showed us that original timeline. That would have been potentially interesting. Barry seeing a version of himself that is hyper-focused with no team behind him. That's one possibility of what it could have been. Yeah, it certainly seems like a massive oversight. Yeah. Especially since the show has such a love of mucking around with timelines and demonstrating the consequences of doing so. You would think that would be a story that they'd be really eager to tell. Whereas, in the end, it just ends up as something we only get very vague and infrequent allusions to. And I have to commend you for the, the message you sent where you said Thon is no longer erased when you go back in time 20 years. I remember way back in the second season when Thon came back the first time after having been supposedly erased from existence after Eddie shot himself in the chest. And they'd never bothered justifying that in the slightest. They made some hand-waving comment about that was before he was erased. And it just seems to me that every other time that Thorne has returned, it's been a reflection of that. They decided to establish it as something that is just going to happen, that they don't ever need to bother justifying. But at this last time, it was just so egregious that they couldn't be bothered justifying it properly. It just annoyed me more than it has any of the other times. And also the point that Thorne is meant to be this eternal menace who somehow exists in every aspect of Barry's life simultaneously. And so like, the idea of it, this instance of him that's just kind of there, just wandering around that Barry could stumble into, it ends up pretty much shattering whatever little mystique the character still remained. I have a headcanon for how that whole thing could have been justified as well. Once Eddie kills himself and then Thorne is erased... The next thing that happens is the big singularity over Central City, which I took as the timeline cleaning itself up, as in this alternate timeline that we've been following this whole time can't exist because it was created by Thon, who now never existed. Yeah, that works. But what they did was they saved the timeline by closing the singularity, so stopping it from cleaning up the timeline effectively. And therefore that still allowed for all the stuff that led to that moment to still happen even though it makes no sense for it to happen. It allows for the paradox to exist. And they could have explained that quite easily just by saying, remember that singularity? Yeah, that was supposed to fix everything. We stopped it. Yeah, so we now exist in the tangent universe. Yeah, but we've always been in the tangent universe, even since the first episode of Arrow. Yep, and you now exist in a tangent universe whose existence is now solidified. Yeah, and that's why you can still have Thon kicking about in the future and so on, because they didn't allow the singularity to do what it's supposed to do and restore what would have been the better timeline with a more competent Flash, you would assume. Honestly, you have given far more thought to this show than it ever deserved. I've had nine years to think about that one, or eight years, because <laughs> it was the end of season one. But that's what I thought they were doing at the end of season one. That's why I thought the singularity was there. It makes sense. This universe can't exist because Thon needs to be born in order for this universe to exist. So therefore, now that he was never born, the timeline has to go. Makes sense. It's just cosmic forces mopping up after itself. That's where you're supposed to have time wraiths as well, but what even are they? They're even mentioned this season, insultingly. <laughs> and then seem to have absolutely no issue with the paradox of Nora holding her baby self. Yeah, I was just thinking about Doctor Who when she was doing that. The Reapers, I think they were called. I think they were too, yeah. Um, creating that paradox through physical contact made them more powerful. Yeah, but don't 
It's fine. The Time Wraiths are only there when it's plot convenient and they haven't been mentioned in years. I think the last time they appeared might have been season three. Zoom was as the Death Flash or whatever he was called. Black Flash, whatever he was called. I think it was Black Flash. And that was because of the Time Wraiths, so there's a tangential connection there. Maybe they've been in it since, I'm not sure. Was that before or after the Season of Legends that used them? Were they in a Season of Legends? I thought that was Black Flash as well. Maybe I'm mixing the two up. Can't remember. It's, it's all messy. So with that first episode, I liked some of what it did. I liked some of the emotional beats, but I do think, as they always do, they drilled down and made it too simple and didn't think some of the things through, such as Barry offering Thon the chance to walk away and live a better life, which he can't do because he needs the future to play out the way it does, which is something he's supposed to understand by now. What would he have done if Thon had walked away? Would he have to go and kill his mother? That'd be an interesting twist. He comes back for those five minutes in the second episode. Where have you been? I was back in the night my mother died. Turns out I did it now. (laughs) Why? Oh, because I let Thon redeem himself? Why the hell did you do that? Because it was the right thing to do. So now you've stabbed your mother. Yeah, makes sense, right? All I've said in that second episode is that there's very little Barry. There's very little in the third episode as well, actually. But there's very little in the second episode. It's just people milling about for the most part. They're not really doing anything. You have the negative speed force trying to upset the team so that they're off balance, which he kind of does with Keon and kind of does with Chester, although not really. That's a bit. I just remember a scene where Chester was quote unquote dying. I was kind of thinking, are we really expected to believe this is going to stick? You mean the last episode, or was there a point in the second episode I've forgotten about? Oh, sorry, the events all kind of blurred together. I can't remember what happens (laughs) when exactly. Valid. A problem I had with the negative speed force throughout this arc and throughout the season, really, well, it wasn't really a factor in the rest of the season other than this part, is that they seemed confused over what the negative speed force stood for. So the idea is. It needs a perfect avatar so that it can do whatever it's going to do. Fine. And the idea is potentially it has to emotionally manipulate Team Flash because it can't do anything else because it isn't strong enough yet. Inhabiting people like Mark isn't good enough because it can't do anything other than those emotional attacks. But then you had it being powerful anyway. You had it being a physical threat as well. But I was thinking, you can't have both. Exactly. It's one or the other. Why is it bothering with the emotional stuff if it can just attack head on? It doesn't work. The two things put together doesn't make any sense in any justifiable manner whatsoever. Yeah, so in one scene you have Mark inhabited by the negative speed force saying to Keon, oh, you're a waste of space, you're nothing, you have no idea what you are, you're useless to try and throw her off. And then the next scene, it's attacking someone. Why? Which one is it? Are you strong or are you not? You can't be both. You just cannot be both. And that's the episode where, it might be the second episode, but that's the episode where it releases lethal gas into Iris's place of work and nobody evacuates. Not one person. They just tell Iris to go sit in her office. Because apparently that's safe. Her office is airtight now. (laughs) So instead of leaving and calling the relevant emergency services, you have journalists trying to close the pipe that has burst, that's releasing phalon gas, which is an effective fire suppressant, but is also illegal because it damages the ozone layer. But not in Central City, apparently. It's fine. And someone who is so keyed into the natural world like Keon should know that. Should know that. It shouldn't be in here. But... She's able to break it down inside dead people because it's a natural occurring thing. And she turns her faces green and it's fine, apparently. It's not clear. It seems like she turns them into actual plants so that they can deal with the infection or deal with the thing that's killing them. Whether it's a temporary thing or not, we don't know. But she gives them plant properties. Which is 
hilarious. And just as a random aside, maybe think of this novel by John Scalzi called Old Man's War, where one of the central concepts in it is bioengineered bodies for soldiers that actually have green skin because they're fused with this artificial chlorophyll so they can convert sunlight into energy. <laughs> I just couldn't stop thinking of that while I was watching the characters looking utterly ridiculous. And then it's the whole, she can't affect the cobalt because it's not naturally occurring because it's man-made, I guess, but Surely it's made up of things that are naturally occurring. So if I mix one natural thing with another natural thing, she can't do anything about it? Does that mean if you're choking on a piece of cake, she can't do anything about it? Because you've combined naturally occurring things into an unnatural thing. Yeah, it didn't really seem to make any sense. I mean, none of that made any sense. Oh, yeah, I mean, but it doesn't actually make sense even in the context of how they're trying to explain it. Yeah, there's a lethal gas leak. You leave the building. End of story. What's the first thing you're told about health and safety or fire safety when you start a new job where you have to work in a location? If there's a fire, leave. Here are the evacuation points. Get out. Also, isn't that building full of other people that work there? Other offices and stuff? Because Cecile's just across the hall, isn't she? Yes, but because we never actually see any of them, then we are not supposed to think about them because they do not exist. Yeah. But the whole cobalt versus... Halon distinction was so that Allegra couldn't wake up because she was directing that episode. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I guess that's fine. I wonder why they let her direct an episode. It's very strange. I guess nobody else is interested. I've never directed before. Is it okay if I direct one of the final episodes? Yeah, sure, why not? We don't care anyway. It's fine. Exactly. Have you seen the crap that we've put out so far? To be fair, I don't think she did a bad job from a directorial standpoint. It didn't look measurably better or worse than any other episode. Yeah, I don't have any specific complaints about it. But that's all that really happens in that episode, isn't it? Oh, and Iris goes into labour in that episode as well. Yeah, which was an inevitability, because in the realm of TV shows, no woman ever goes into labour at a convenient time. No. It's also the fact is they didn't do anything with the pregnancy plot. She was pregnant and then they had a several-month time skip. <laughs> and then it was close to the end, wasn't it? It was after the Oliver episode. It was months later, I guess, about eight months, seven months later, something like that. So you don't really get to go through any of that whole pregnancy thing. It's weird because it picks up with, here's what we've been up to. Great. I'm not saying it would be interesting to see any of it. Hmm. But it's the fact that we just don't care about developing the characters. We're just going to say they have developed and move on. Yeah, because that's totally the same, isn't it? And then the labour thing is so weirdly understated as well. I'm used to TV shows where a woman going into labour is this big frantic thing and they make it to the hospital at the last second or there's other stuff going on. And in this, it's... Oh yeah, she's fine. The baby should be here in a few hours or whatever. It'll be all right. Hmm. They're just sitting in the waiting room, not doing it. <laughs> we should have time to defeat the negative speed force before Nora's born. We're not pressed for time here. And then Barry gets sucked into the future again anyway. Yes, he was able to reappear for just long enough for the birth of his daughter because anyone who we're supposed to take seriously as a father absolutely would be there no matter what. And then once that's done, then the time storm can whisk him off again. Well, he was whisked away during the whole labour process and then he was back in plenty of time for the actual births. Yeah. No consequences, no risk there really. Of course the second episode did set up Malcolm someone who turned out to be Eddie. Didn't matter. It was this fake life that was built that he was living. Yeah, which again we were told happened but never saw any of and so therefore had no emotional connection to and as a result no reason to care. Yeah. What did you think of the return of Eddie as a concept just for the final episodes? Again I can understand it as a final season full circle thing as in 
he's the first of the team to die, effectively. So coming back to that, I guess, makes some kind of sense. It does, yeah. I do agree with that, certainly. And with their insistence on playing on the notion of things coming full circle, then his brief time in the show is something that definitely needed to be acknowledged. However, I think the potential that he had was utterly squandered. Since his very presence was supposed to be something that was being given climactic significance of everything that was happening, or in most cases not happening, then he should have been reintroduced a long time before this point. It didn't even need to be very much, just random glimpses of Mal going about his day and seeing what his life is like and comparing his behaviour to that which we remember about Eddie. Yeah, they could have had that peppered throughout the season. Exactly. And it also didn't need to have any real significance for these moments, because the fact that they were being shown would be enough of a mystery in itself. Why do you look like Eddie? What's going on? Exactly. And that being very obvious, while not actually being dealt with, would demonstrate that he was going to become very significant later down the line. But it would actually give us something to wait for. Would have given a sense of purpose and momentum that this season otherwise entirely lacks. Yeah, he's lightly in the second episode. In the third episode, he becomes Eddie pretty much right away. And then the rest of the episode is him confused, trying to figure out what's going on. So he goes to Team Flash and he has to deal with Nora because apparently... The Justice League exists and they have the Watchtower in orbit of the moon. Add that to the list of cool stuff that would have been nice to see, but we don't. Barry's off on there and he's out of communication range for some reason. I did actually look this up. And for this version of the Watchtower to actually be on the dark side of the moon, it would have needed to have been situated at a point in Earth's orbit roughly ten times further away from the planet than it's generally depicted in, in the comics. Purely so there was some justification for future Barry to be out of communication. <laughs> I did also find it faintly ironic to have a space station called the Watchtower that can't always see the Earth. <laughs> Any villain worth their salt could be thinking, okay, we have that window of blindness that we can use. We have hours, apparently, if not days, to wreak havoc because they can't detect us. But we're dissuaded from this because Nora's around, apparently. Or XS, as she's called, and the rest of Team Flash. This is more indicators of them just not bothering to think through their weak justifications or the implications of them. Yeah. As brief as it was, though, I did quite like the Eddie being uncertain and feeling like he'd had his life taken from him. I like the idea of, from his perspective, everybody forgot about him, because he's witnessing this scenario whereby he dies, Barry and Iris hook up, like was supposedly foretold as he learned before he killed himself. And it seems that the world went on without him, which I think is an interesting problem for someone that's just been resurrected to look at. I died so many years ago and apparently everybody dealt with it and moved on. I don't like that. It's not that they forgot you, but you can see that from his perspective, he might feel that way. And also because from his perspective, all of this happened literally yesterday. Seconds ago, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So that's really jarring. And he tries to convince Iris to pick up where they left off. And she's like, no, I've got a family. And oh, by the way, I was wrong to tell you that I wasn't in love with Barry all those years ago. <laughs> because I was young, stupid and naive. That's not what he needs to hear. Why not? At the time, I totally meant it. But you died. So this is what happened. You died. I couldn't grieve you forever. I need to move on. Yeah. The problem with all that is Barry makes mistakes in dealing with them, Iris makes mistakes in dealing with them, and neither of them acknowledge that they didn't do that very well. It's all Eddie's fault that he reacted the way he did. It isn't their fault. And that bothers me. I really like it when characters are acknowledged to have flaws and are allowed to be flawed. Exactly, because that's how 
growth and development comes. But if you refuse to acknowledge a character's shortcomings, then there isn't any way that they can develop because they just think that they're perfect and don't need to change. And then that's an exacerbation of the problem of the negative speed force needing a vessel. Because in that episode particularly, it's are you weak without this vessel or not? Because it's inhabiting Nora and that seems fine. How greater will you really be if you inhabit this perfect vessel rather than these multiple imperfect ones? And why is Eddie your perfect vessel as well? Again, it was very vague. There's a crystal that's charging that's connected to him somehow. Because it's something he invented as Malcolm, I don't know. So did it ever actually explain all those flashes of flowers were supposed to signify? No. Okay, they were called blue flowers and he ultimately adopts the name Cobalt Blue. Those characters are supposed to be in the comments. Can't remember if he actually said it in the show or not. I'm not sure. But I'm wearing this costume because Cobalt Blue wears it in the comics. Yeah. It seemed to be another detail that they were attempting to afford far greater significance than they ever actually possessed. I'd forgotten about that actually. It just struck me as a random visual detail that didn't mean anything, so I guess I didn't think about it. Yeah, because it already had nothing to deal with. The idea of this thing being a battle for Eddie's soul was interesting, at least on a conceptual level. So you have the negative speed force trying to wear him down so that he submits to being the avatar, and then you have particularly Barry and Iris trying to convince him to lean into being this good person. And that push and pull. But it happens so quickly. And it's also haphazard. He goes from, I was dead. and I don't know what to do with that. To, oh no, I deserve this life. I want this. You don't see enough of the temptation side of it. And as you alluded to earlier, Jessica Parker Kennedy with a blonde wig (laughs) is apparently Eddie's daughter. Because Barry apparently contributes very little genetically to Nora. And exactly that is why Eddie needed to have been introduced far earlier in the season so that there was time for this duality in him to first be adequately established and then to have the tug of war over which aspect of it ends up becoming dominant. It reminded me of the episode of Supernatural where Lucifer's trying to convince his vessel to be his vessel. Mm, Yes. I don't actually remember the character that Mark Pellegrino played that ended up becoming Lucifer's vessel. don't either. It doesn't matter though because he's only in that episode but the, the idea of Lucifer preying on him for the whole episode, showing him what he could have had and showing him what he lost. That was beautifully done until the point where he finally said yes, which is effectively what the negative speed force needs here. Although I don't understand why, because it can just inhabit other people. And you can explain it as it can lightly take over people and do a couple of things, but it can't be a tangible physical threat. Like I said, you can't have both. You try to have both. You can't have both. But I can accept the whole it can inhabit Mark and say mean things, or it could inhabit Nora and say mean things. But in order to actually truly live up to its potential, it has to have proper consent. It has to be fully embraced by its vessel in order to be as effective as possible. That's not consistent with any of the other sources, though, because it wasn't clear what happened there in terms of who they were inhabiting and things. In the case of Speed Force Nora, the Speed Force just takes on the form of Barry's mother. Doesn't need a vessel where the others do. Doesn't make any sense. And then the negative forces outside of the negative speed force are just the same people. Hmm. So again, that doesn't make any sense. So the negative speed force needing a vessel both makes sense and doesn't because outside of the speed force, the positive forces did need vessels, even though the negative ones didn't because they just copied the look of the other forces in order to be duplicitous. Doesn't make sense. But anyway, if the whole notion is that Eddie's supposed to be the perfect vessel for some reason... And the negative speed force needs him to embrace it 
in order to make that happen. I can get on board with that at least on some level, and I kind of liked what they were trying to do, but they just norsed it up like they usually do. Pretty much, yeah. Inconsistencies like this, they would be easier to deal with if they weren't so glaring. Because it's not something that takes any great deal of concentration to pick up on. It's just blatantly obvious that they have these two situations that completely contradict each other, and there's absolutely no acknowledgement or justification of it. It's something we're expected to just accept, because that's how they decided to write it. And then we get on to the final episode, which was just a waste of time, really. You have Negative Speed Force Eddie, who seems more Eddie than Negative Speed Force, or it seems that there's a perfect symbiosis between the two, I guess, because he's fueled by Eddie's motivation to get rid of Barry and take over his life, or get the life that was stolen from him. And in order to do that, he needs to bring back prominent speedsters from the past, which include Thon, but with Tom Cavanaugh's face, because of course he does. Uh, I can't bother getting into this again. <laughs> Zoom, Savitar, and Godspeed. And the one scene that I liked in the final episode was when they were bickering about who was the fastest. Because that's always been the motivation for all of them. Just be the fastest, be faster than everyone else. And it's so hilariously childish to watch them snipe and threaten each other about it. Yeah, it was good. And it was the one example of justifying bringing these characters back. They are distinct because they have personalities, and therefore it's worthwhile having them in the same room. Exactly. You built your whole universe on the fact that it's good having actors in the same room interacting with each other. <laughs> That's why you did the crossovers. So, yes, it's good that you recognise that, but then after that they just become action figures. They just feed into a big battle, and then that's it. Yeah, a big battle where every single one of these uber-powerful, evil speedsters is defeated by someone other than the team's resident speedster. And then, ultimately, it taking half the length of the entire episode to get back to the exact same point that the previous one ended. <laughs> 20 minutes of your 42-minute finale is utterly meaningless, then exactly what kind of resolution and spectacle and memories are expecting people to take from this when so much of it is just written off in a heartbeat? It's really bizarre, because as you say, Barry is completely ineffectual during that fight. I think maybe the funniest defeat for me was when Nora just stabbed Savitar with a piece of his suit and then he was dealt with. This was a season-long antagonist. I'm going to refer to this because Aaron refers to this problem as the 10 trillion Dalek problem, as in the idea that a single unkillable thing is a huge threat, but when you have multiple unkillable things, they're easy to defeat. So you have multiple season antagonists in one action sequence, and you just have to deal with them quickly because otherwise they would all just win because they took up a season of storytelling to get rid of in the past. Or in the case of Thon, multiple seasons of storytelling, and they're still not rid of them. So the gravity of that threat is even bigger, really. And who the hell is Cobalt Blue to come in and be like, I'm the best? Because he's not. He just isn't. Another example of that is in the final episode of Buffy, where before they even get their full Slayer powers, the potential Slayers are killing all the Uber Vamps, despite the fact that one of them almost killed Buffy in a previous episode. So it's not a new problem, but it is a glaring one. And it devalues bringing those villains back, because other than that one scene of them bickering, they don't do anything with them. It seems like they were just briefly drafted in again as an acknowledgement of how significant they were in the past. I kind of understand the idea of, again, reflecting on the rest of the show in your final episode by saying, we're much stronger than these threats that once challenged us. 
So they're not a threat anymore because of how far we've come and how much we've learned. But that doesn't really come across because everybody's just so insanely powerful and defeats them easily. Cecile defeating Godspeed is possibly one of the bigger insults. Yeah, because as we mentioned earlier, Cecile's power level is just ridiculous. She can fly in this episode. When the hell did that happen? How can she fly? Is it like in Chronicle where she uses her telekinesis to essentially lift herself? The telekinesis that she learned a few episodes ago and has now somehow mastered. But she can fly. She can fly around like Superman. I guess that solves her commute problem. (laughs) And also, as you pointed out in the message to me at the episode, that she's also wearing a costume that she only just got in the future. Yeah, did the writers forget that the climax of the previous episode took place in the future? I mean, it'd be easy to forget because they did nothing to visually indicate that the characters were any older in those future scenes. Yeah, which I actually found faintly amusing, because throughout this entire season, I had this running joke in my head that everyone involved in this show was just gradually checking out and just didn't care anymore. <laughs> and it was like, okay, so this one, now the makeup people can't be bothered doing anything else. <laughs> the thing is, we've seen Iris in the future in previous episodes, and she has a bit of grey in her hair and things. So they have established that the characters do age, and of course they do, because they're all human. And Cecile, I'm not sure how old she is. I think Danielle Nicolette's in her like mid-40s, so you'd have to assume around that age. Joe must be nearly 60, you would imagine. There's a bit of an age gap between them. Yeah. So she would be in her late 60s, maybe? How many years in the future is it? 2042, isn't it? I think it's about 25. Yeah, something like that. So 2048 is that they're on, I guess? I don't know. But yeah, anyway, there's 20 odd years in the future and none of them look any older. And Cecile would be near 70s, I guess. Yeah, so in other words, she was right to be rather enthused about how good she looks. <laughs> yeah, and then Chester and Allegra look exactly the same as well. And since we're on that subject, well, in the future, Cecile learns that she's apparently done her priorities wrong and been prioritising Team Flash more than her family and has only been home like twice in the last year or something like that. And... Chester gives her the pep talk and tells her that she must be doing it right. She must have a good reason and no notes, nothing to improve there. Rather than the, oh my God, I have to make sure this doesn't happen, which is your expected and logical lesson from Mm -hmm. such a development. And there's also a conspicuous lack of querying as to exactly what makes Chester qualified to give this advice. I said in my review that it was just the one pep talk that they hadn't done yet. Almost like a bingo card. Yeah, it's the one pairing of going to the corridor to cheer you up that they've not done yet, so they had to do (laughs) it. It would have made more sense for it to be Allegra because they have that connection, and the advice should have been, well, now you've seen the future, so you can now just make sure that doesn't happen, rather than, nah, it's probably fine. What nonsense is this? Like I said earlier, they must know what the optimum thing to do is and be deliberately doing the opposite. It doesn't seem like much else makes any sense. No. Crazy. Also, just as a bit of an aside, it's also the point where Cecile was given a superhero name. Virtue? Yeah. The name and the costume is actually taken from an entirely different character. Well, it wouldn't be the first time Arrowverse has melded one of their original characters into an existing one. Oh, no. I think in the comics, Cecile was actually there's a very minor presence who I think I only appeared in one story arc. She's been in the show since season one, by the way. I was reminded of that. Yeah. She's in like one episode in season one. There was a comment about that specific choice from Gail Simone, who is the comics writer who created Virtue. And she actually pointed out that it was a little disappointing that that look and code name had been reappropriated to a straight woman. Because the comics Virtue character is, in Gail Simone's words, hella not straight. (laughs) 
So it's not quite to the same degree as the person that created Agent Liberty watching Supergirl and saying, what the hell have you done to my character? Not quite that, no. That was quite a passionate reaction to that, wasn't it? Passionate and also reasonable, actually. You turned a character that's essentially a Captain America analogue into a massive racist. Fantastic. And you're adapting this. Why? And now every time that someone hears my character's name, this is what they're going to think of. (laughs) There is a suggestion that Aaron made that's on a podcast that may or may not be out before this one. I don't know yet. Depends which order I do things in. He suggested that there's maybe a larger conversation we could have as a group about adaptation and what's important and what changes are valid and what ones aren't. Because there is a conversation in that. The idea of, does it matter if Virtue's changed to whatever the show wants her to be? Does it matter that Agent Liberty is changed to whatever Supergirl wants her to be? Does it matter that Adam Warlock is adapted in the way that he is in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, etc, etc? There's some fertile ground for chat there that we should pick up at some point. Absolutely, especially in regards to where you draw the line of making changes to an existing character as you adapt them, and where that crosses over to where you change them so much that claiming them to be an adaptation of the original character no longer means anything. Yeah, so Cecile in the future, she's doing fine, apparently, despite the fact she's clearly not doing fine. Also, she decides to lie to the future Team Flash about the fact that she's her past self in the future, despite the fact she has no reason to. Cecile, you're acting weird. I'm actually from the past. Oh, okay. And also, given just how many of the team's enemies over the years have had abilities to do with illusions or shape-shifting. Or body-stealing. Exactly, yeah, things like that. When someone turns up who looks like their friend but doesn't know the most fundamental details of her life that doesn't give you any cause for concern yeah chuck them in the pipeline and then ask questions that's what you usually do that's just shows someone really not paying attention remember during elseworlds when barry and oliver were acting strange and they dumped them in the pipeline at the first sign of trouble exactly because they acknowledged how probable that kind of thing is of indicating trouble and it's an unnecessary thing anyway because all cecile had to say was oh i'm from the past i'm just in the future to see what's going on, because I'm the one that can do this now for some reason. Then Allegra says, tell me something that past Cecile would only know. And then she says it, and then, yeah, okay, let's move on. Job done, instead of the pointless posturing. And of course she has that moment of self-doubt, so that she can have a pep talk and go back to it later, like they always do. Formula, fine. Also in the pointless action figure battle, Allegra is the one to defeat Thon. Why? What? No. Why did Thon even go there? Exactly, because what purpose does killing Chester serve? You think he would go after Barry, because, you know, he hates him. Because it's literally his entire purpose for being to destroy Barry. Yeah, and then Allegra finds out Chester's alive, and they just sit and make out, instead of checking to see if Thon is definitely down. (laughs) How about we chuck this guy in a cell, then we'll celebrate the fact that you're alive. These people have clearly not watched enough slasher movies. Or they're aware that they're in a TV show where everything is always fine. I remember a line in one of the early crossovers between Arrow and The Flash, where Roy makes his comments in response to Cisco giving their villains code names. And Roy makes a comment, yeah, you can do that, because you live in Central City where it's always sunny and nothing bad ever happens. (laughs) Pretty much. They even riffed on that a bit when Felicity came to Central City, and she said, I thought you were the fun one. 
<laughs> that was in season one of The Flash. Then there was a bit where Oliver was insulted as well at the codename thing because he sees it as real life and he thought that meant they see it as a bit of a game. Exactly, yeah. And Barry says, oh, sorry, maybe we should sit and discuss this with the Huntress and whatever else code names had been given, Black Arrow and the Huntress or whatever. Character stuff. Remember when they used to do that? Vaguely. Yeah. So Cobalt Blue is, as you say, the last one left, which is exactly where they were at the end of the previous episode. He's wearing a weird costume with a blue jewel on it for some reason. We don't need to know. It's just cause. And he absorbs the speed of the other speedsters that he left. Oh no, you had Keon defeating Zoom as well, but that was nothing. Yeah, because goddess. Yeah. But they got Tony Todd to turn up to say like one thing, two things maybe. Easy paycheck for him. I approve. Not going to complain. Yeah, of course. And again, there was something mildly interesting in the potential resolution to this whole negative speed force situation. It was Keon helping Barry see a different way out, altering his perspective a bit. When she tells him, I've been exploring the natural world, I've learned that everything works in harmony rather than in conflict. And you can understand how Barry would see it from the perspective of a perpetual conflict because he was effectively born into conflict. He got his powers and he's been fighting villains ever since. It's the mantra of, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So Barry's point of view is that the only way to build a better world is to fight for it. Whereas Keown says that it's about working together. And then he goes to Eddie and they have a chat about, maybe we should work together. And Eddie's like, yeah, cool, let's do that. That sounds good. It's a bit more complicated than that. It's about the be a better person. I'm not going to fight you, et cetera, et cetera. But the whole idea of we're stuck in this cycle of violence and death where where the negative forces get stronger, we beat them, we get stronger, they come back and so on. And it's just this levelling up until the end of time, I guess, when these things will play out. But flipping the perspective to the, no, 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 we're opposite forces, so therefore we're important in our own way. Well, I don't know when Barry became the avatar of the Speed Force. Yeah, that seemed to have been glossed over. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. He's not even the first speedster in this universe anymore because you've got Jay Garrick. He's here for some reason. Mm-hmm. They never explained that either. But I quite like the idea of you're thinking about this wrong and you need to think about it differently in order to make a better world. And again, as a parent thing, it's about the idea of I want to create a better world for my child to grow up in. And it doesn't alter the world to the point where villains can't be around but it does stop the constant threat of the forces coming back, that you provide some kind of balance to that. So I thought that was an interesting-ish idea, but it was just resolved so clumsily. And the bit where Eddie said, don't expect me to see eye to eye with you all the time, and then he vanishes, and that's the last you ever hear of him. That doesn't mean anything. But the idea of Barry looking at the world differently is something that I quite liked, because that does suggest some kind of growth. And since there's no more episodes after this one, I can actually assume the growth sticks. <laughs> or nothing else you can just decide it does, because no one can tell you otherwise. Uh, yeah, it's up to me now. Until they make the Flash season 10 comics and ruin everything. God, I hadn't even thought of that. Actually. <laughs> they did it with Smallville. They did. Which I've read some of. And Angel. And Buffy and various other things. Firefly. Yeah. So what did you think of that as an idea of coming to a resolution. I think, if nothing else, it was more of an interesting way of resolving things than just a simple speedster punch-up lit up by colour-coded flashes of lightning. But I agree that it was resolved far too quickly to have any kind of real impact. Because it's something that's like, okay, so let's do this, let's agree on this. Okay, cool. Are we done? Great, sound. Okay, see ya. Keon has a two-minute conversation with Barry. He changes his entire worldview... 
and then passes that on to Eddie, who also changes his entire worldview, and then they move on. This is another example of the kind of thing that could have been developed in a far more measured way if this particular plotline had been far more gradually percolating throughout the season, rather than just crammed into the last few episodes. Yeah. And then we start wrapping things up after this. Nora's born. Joe steals Barry's thunder at some kind of party by proposing to Cecile finally. I'd actually forgotten that they weren't married. Same. But apparently they're not. So that's a thing, I guess. Cool. Okay. Yeah, and again, tiny bits of continuity that they can bring out should they so choose. There was one nice moment I quite liked in these concluding scenes. I really liked Joe and Iris's scene where you're not my little girl anymore, I'll always be your little girl. It's a nice little moment within a sea of drudgery. It actually reminded me how well they used to do that parental relationship way back. And Joe sings to baby Nora, which was kind of nice. Again, another little nice moment. So we'll give them that. We'll be generous. Yeah, I, I can do that. I can acknowledge that. that it was nice to watch and not feel the need to follow it up with some sarcastic observation. And the final moment of the series, which is something. It's a choice, certainly. Barry decides that they now live in this better world. He's fixed his worldview. He now thinks about balance and all that other hippy-dippy stuff, I guess we could refer to it as. And he decides that they're not going to hoard their power anymore, which doesn't make sense because every member of Team Flash has powers, including Chester now. He's suddenly reminded that he used to be a black hole and might have some latent black hole powers. So even he gets powers by the end of the show, even though we don't actually see what they are. It'll essentially be what Cisco could do. Probably just opens portals. So that's another way that Cecile can commute back and forth, probably. <laughs> There's options. There's definite options. But Barry decides that instead of hoarding power, he's going to share it. And in the same way that the lightning bolt chose him, he is going to do the choosing now. He's going to mint three new speedsters. And we don't get any inkling of how he decided to choose these three speedsters or whether they consented to it in any way. I get the idea of doing the parallel of he was chosen by the lightning, now he's the one firing the lightning that chooses others. That is technically a parallel that you can create between the first episode and the last episode, but it's a kind of meaningless one. Also, remember when they did a story about how Barry was annoyed that the Speed Force did not give him powers with consent. Although, that was blood work talking, apparently, because we learned earlier in the season that blood work doesn't bring out your deepest fears and resentments and anxieties. It just creates them. Or he just creates them. I don't know what the actual pronoun is. We'll say it, the goo, does that. Yeah. It creates those things in you rather than exploiting what's already there. So are we supposed to believe that Barry actually resented the Speed Force on some level for taking away control of his life in the way that it did? Because that was actually a really interesting thing for them to play with for an episode. And that explained why he submitted to blood work in the first place. So here he's apparently making that same mistake. He's burdening these three people with powers without knowing, as far as we know, how they'll react to it or what they're going to do with them. Exactly, because we know literally nothing about these people. They're all from the comics, apparently, according to an article I read. Yeah, so they're all just basically name-checked from the printed page. Which means nothing. Yes, and which also means that if you're not a comics reader, then their names would be meaningless to you. Yeah. Also, one of them was in it before, apparently. The episode where Nora and Bart 
were in the past, were in the pre-season one past. Bart was flirting with one of them. Yeah, though I didn't remember that was who she was until I actually checked because I didn't remember her. And then after checking, I still barely remembered her. But even with that connection within the context of the show itself, it still doesn't explain why Barry knows who she is and why he chose to give her powers. What thought process went into the choosing? Does he just feel that they'll be good speedsters? That would at least have been something. Exactly. Because if the suggestion is supposed to be that Barry was chosen by Lightning Bolt for a reason, to someone to be given superpowers, and it stands to reason that there must have been some reason at least three people were chosen as well. Unless we are to believe that Barry just chucked out a trio of Lightning Bolts into the ether and let them strike whoever. Which again, I would believe... Because I do think he's that much of an idiot. Yes, and as has been demonstrated time and time again, he does not think through the consequences of his actions. At first I thought what he was going to do is he was going to throw the lightning bolt at his past self. But, yeah, but perhaps that they decided that he, that would have been a bit too cheesy even for them. Yeah, but it's also a thing in the comics, isn't it? Is it not when the Flash dies during Crisis, he becomes a lightning bolt that then creates himself in the past? Oh, God, yeah, I've forgotten that. And I kind of thought they were heading maybe in that direction because you have that mention of the Missing in Crisis article that took up so much of the run of the show until they actually did zero with it. Yes, which, again, was frustrating. Yeah. So I actually thought Iris made reference to it as a suggestion that maybe the universe was coming for him or something because he was supposed to disappear and didn't. Because they even had the red skies and things. So it seemed like they might have been heading in that way. And I didn't think for a second the show would end with Barry actually dying and then creating himself. But when he threw the lightning into the sky, I did think... Well, maybe he's going to throw it back in time as well. That would have made more sense than what he was actually doing. And also, just about like Red Sky's article. As I mentioned earlier, I'd have to read everything. <laughs> the actual text of the article keeps on changing as the series progresses, when there are more and more characters that he referenced. It always details a battle against Reverse Flash as well. The first iteration was the Flash Green Arrow in a battle against Reverse Flash, wasn't it? Yeah, and then they came Green Arrow, Flash, Atom, and Hawk Girl, and we got from there to referencing White Canary and the Legends of Tomorrow and Batwoman and Supergirl, which incidentally I think is the only time Sarah was ever actually referred to as White Canary. I think she was periodically referred to as it. Was she? Yeah. It did come up a few times, and I think it was on screens as well. Generally, don't remember that. Wasn't the first iteration not written by Iris as well? Yes. Anyway. The crisis that never happened. Yeah. When Thorne said, see you next crisis. <laughs> no, you won't. Won't even be involved. To have been promising this major event for literally the show's entire run, and then to ultimately just ignore it. Just one final indication of just how little they actually cared about what they were doing. Flash dies in crisis. It's actually another Flash from another universe in a room that no one except the heroes that are in it see. But that totally counts for bringing this prophecy to fruition. Yes. That means it totally happened now. Yeah, you dropped the ball in this one, guys. I thought they were maybe going to try and get back to that in some way, but they didn't. Yeah, the lightning creation thing at the end, it just didn't make any sense. I get that they were trying to be poetic with it, so it was vague on detail because it was the gesture that you were supposed to connect with. The idea of Barry is now ascended to the point where he can now choose other heroes because he's beyond the top of his game now. But it doesn't come across. Yeah, but if that were the intention, then there was no need to actually see these people who the lightning hits. The notion that he was throwing lightning out there was enough. I wonder if it was they were kind of trying to have their Buffy moment 
everybody that can be a slayer will be a slayer moment. And it cuts between all the girls that are suddenly just coming into their powers. Possibly. Though I think I'm maybe reading a little too much into it. Possibly. But there is a sort of similarity there. I do see the similarity. I would just question how intentional it was. Oh, not at all, probably. But it's one of those things. For example, I don't think they were trying to riff on the Lucifer trying to convince his vessel to accept him. But it's what it made me think of. Yeah. It's what I do when I'm bored. I think of better things that have done the same thing. <laughs> so as an ending, I guess... It's an ending of sorts. But you could see it picking up with a season 10 where it's about Barry dealing with these three new speedsters and realising he maybe made a mistake with at least one of them. And then by the end of the season, it turns out he didn't make a mistake at all. It's just some people learn differently than others or some crap like that. That sounds entirely plausible. And the article you sent me was that they were planning to perhaps do Blackest Night for season 10 if they got one. Yes, and I would have absolutely hated that. It would have been a disaster if it was this production team making it. I think the whole Blackest Night arc is absolutely spectacular. But to see it given the kind of treatment that we have now come to expect from the people in charge of this show, it would have been unrecognisable, would have ruined everything about it that makes it special. And it would have just been hacked into some incoherent nonsense that plays into the generic messages that the show feels compelled to tell time and again. Although they were suggesting it would be the last big crossover event, which of course you can tease when you don't have to do it. Exactly. It's easy to make promises when you're never going to have to follow up on them. Obviously, like you say, it would have been unrecognisable, but in terms of the Blackest Night story, it's been a while since I've read it, but doesn't it need there to be a working knowledge of the lanterns as a thing? Everyone needs to know what the lanterns are, at least who's involved in it, in order for it to have the impact, don't they? Exactly, because if you don't know who the Green Lanterns are, then the appearances of Black Lanterns isn't going to mean anything to you. Yeah, so what you would have is you have to have this storyline where you have to establish the Green Lantern core and then establish the Black Lanterns and throw it all together. Yeah, and probably also have to establish all the other Lantern cores as well, because the whole notion of Blackest Night was the War of Light. If only they had the opportunity to turn a character into a Green Lantern at some earlier point and therefore establish the concept of the lanterns. That was one of the things that I thought was a great idea about them. The notion that the prerequisite for someone becoming a Black Lantern is that they need to be either dead or have previously died and been resurrected. Which is what was great about it, because that's pretty much every superhero in existence. <laughs> yeah, Diggle would have been a good end to that, I suppose, if they'd done the Green Lantern story. Exactly. But no, they knew better. But we're never going to see it. It's going to be fine. They're not going to make it. It's over. Yes, which is actually a very satisfying feeling, just knowing that it's over. It really is. We've been through the grind with this, haven't we, as a TV show, and I've been wanting it to end for quite some time. Same. I can't remember exactly when it was. I actually still enjoyed it. I think the last time I was vaguely on board was somewhere during season three. It hadn't completely lost me at that point yet. Largely, I enjoyed season two. It kind of fell off the rails towards the end, and I don't think I held that against the entire season, because I'm not one of those people that will just consider everything that came before a bad ending invalid. I know some people do. A lot of people that cried out against Mass Effect 3, for example, decided to say the entire game was crap because the ending's not very good. I didn't mind the ending, but even if I didn't like the ending, I still had fun before the ending. Yeah. Season 2, to me, was the same. I enjoyed the build-up to what Zoom was all about, and then having it end with them running around a giant hamster wheel and time remnants or whatever was nonsense. And then it definitely lost me during the Savitar story. I can really only remember fragments of that story. I don't remember especially engaging with it at all. Yeah, it wasn't very good. And the fact that the season started with Flashpoint, which was awful, didn't help. It absolutely did not, because it was 
absolutely dreadful, as we have discussed at length. And then season four was The Thinker, and I checked out by then. At that point, my affiliation with The Flash as a TV show was purely because it was part of a universe that I was enjoying broadly. Something that became an obligation. Completionist tendencies is what kept me going. And then when it became the last one standing, it was, well, I've come this far. Exactly, which is a similar attitude I had towards the final few seasons of The Walking Dead. I've come too far to give up now. I'm seeing this crap through to the end. I can't let those years of strife be for nothing. Exactly. So we saw this through to the end, and one of the funniest details that we can talk about is the fact that Ezra Miller was cast the day this show premiered, and now that the show's over, the film is finally coming out. (laughs) It's nuts. It's actually nuts. (laughs) That it took that long. It really is. Obviously, Ezra Miller was cast for a cameo in Batman v Superman and then a broader appearance in Justice League. But still, the fact that it took this long for the solo movie to manifest is insane. And I won't believe that I'm watching it until it actually starts when I'm sitting in the cinema. Same, which is randomly also how I ended up feeling about New Mutants. (laughs) So this show, it's a shame that it started off so well. Season one will still hold up as a great season of television. And season two, to a lesser extent, for at least two-thirds of it. And then the sharp decline thereafter. It continues to baffle me how something could start off being so strong and become what this is. It doesn't seem to make any sense. No. I've not looked into it, but you'd assume that there's a lot of the same creative people involved in it. I think some of it's to do with showrunners. So what you had was you had whoever the original showrunner was left maybe around season three and that's when that shot down and then they got another showrunner in, Todd Helbing maybe, who showed up around season five which was the Nora season which was alright for at least some of it. The Cicada plot was just so long. The thing I remember most about the Cicada plot is it felt like they were going to wrap it up in like half a dozen episodes or so and it somehow stretched out across the rest of the season. Still don't know how that happened, but it did. So there was a kind of return to quality for that point. After that, Todd Helbing went on to do Superman and Lois and then it's Eric Wallace that took over and he just ran it back into the ground. I can't even figure out what he was trying to do with the show because you can see what Todd Helbing was doing. He was trying to get it back. There'd been a lot of damage done, so it was going to take a while. But he was getting there, I think, at least to some extent. And then all that work just got trampled when Eric Wallace came in. It's just frustrating when you really, really enjoy something to watch it subtly decline so quickly. It almost feels personal, like it's being done just to spite you. Yeah, and then you intermittently had a bit of quality in there. It's mostly during the crossovers where Barry was written to be a competent hero because he was around other competent Hmm. heroes. Those were definitely when the universe was at its best, really. And I think it's a huge insult to have the Arrowverse end on a crappy season of The Flash. It really is. Could they not put at least some effort in? And the showrunner did say in interviews that we're not here to wrap up the universe, we're here to wrap up our show, which is fine. But could you not put at least some effort in so that the universe goes out on some level of quality, even if it's not directly referencing the entirety of the universe? Yeah, just something to at least acknowledge the universe that it existed as a part of. Yeah, which they did throughout the season with Nia and Ryan and Oliver, of course. Yeah, but I never really felt that that was what they were doing, though. No. It just felt that these are random characters we have at our disposal and we fancy using them. Yeah. I read in this other article that... Eric Wallace was having dinner with Todd Helbing and suggested that they should 
bring Arrowverse characters into Superman and Lois, perhaps that universe's version of them, because Superman and Lois does not take place in the Arrowverse. The end of season two did a very pointed cutting ties with that. Indeed. So that's apparently been suggested, and it seemed like Todd Helping was receptive to the idea in the sense that, yeah, 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 we could look at that, yeah, 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 for the purpose of this conversation, as long as it never gets discussed again. Sure, I will absolutely agree to the vague possibility of something that I'm never going to have to follow up on. Because my show's about to get cancelled too. Exactly. At the time of recording, we still don't know what its fate is. Yes, but I would be very surprised if it survives the. CW's new owners call of, of scripted TV shows. So it is a shame that we're losing the Arrowverse like this. And a point that Chris raised to me at some point recently was a question around do you think we'll ever get something like this again? Because obviously we've got the MCU and that's well established and that's not going anywhere soon. It's too big to fail even though the quality is perhaps dipping. But the Arrowverse, it built to such a high and then it just sort of slowly dissolved with no fanfare to it whatsoever and the undertaking was really impressive because they did what they did in the mcu didn't they they slowly built it you started with arrow then you introduced barry and then you do the flash tv show and then you do legends and so on and so on you just build and build and build and then you absorb older shows as you go apparently because that's a thing you can do and it all built organically really to the point where you had green arrow in space and you didn't question it despite that you had this grounded crime show in its first season. They earned it. And I think to Chrissy's question, I don't think so. I don't think we're going to get this again. Certainly not for a very long time. There's also another issue as well. I remember reading an article years ago. I can't remember who said this. I think it was either Jeff Johns or Mark Guggenheim or someone like that. But they're basically saying that the whole Arrowverse thing was an accident. They'd never actually originally intended to make this sprawling, interconnected world of TV shows. Yeah, Arrow was set up as a cheap superhero show, effectively, wasn't it? Exactly. It's one we can do with stunts and stuff, largely. Yeah, I was intended to be completely grounded in reality and the real world. As much as these things can be. Yeah, intending to not actually have any magic or superpowers. Then evidently changed their minds about that. Each of those aspects that you just mentioned of how the world developed, each of them came about in response to what had been happening previously in it. Legends of Tomorrow initially only existed because there's this whole bunch of characters that they didn't have any more use for, but they wanted to do something with. Well, was it not that Katie Lotz was really popular? They identified that she was really popular and they wanted to do something with her. And then it was like, oh crap, we killed her. I don't remember if he'd seen that anywhere, but that does make sense. One thing I do remember, though, is initial promos for it. When I was showing a few of the characters, one of them being Martin Stein, and him referring to himself as being half a hero. But these promos were actually aired prior to the season 2 premiere of The Flash. So at this point, we actually didn't know that Ronnie was dead. It actually led to question, where the hell's Ronnie? What's happened to him? <laughs> I remember that initial promo for Legends of Tomorrow containing footage that just never appeared in the show. I do remember that, yeah. And I think even at the time, I could see that it wasn't going to as well. Because it all seemed to very neatly play out as promo-friendly material, but wasn't actually alluding to any kind of narrative. Yeah, that trailer set up the fact that Barry and Oliver were the ones to create this team. Yes, exactly. And then they had nothing to do with it, really. Oliver was in the first Legends episode, but only to tell Ray that he should go. Yes, and ultimately leading to this ironic moment of Ray commenting about the fact that he supposedly died and nobody cared, nobody noticed. They literally renamed the city after you. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that Legends first trailer, that was before the 
Flash season one finale even aired. Never mind the season two premiere. Remember some of the footage from that trailer turned up in the finale episode of The Flash. It was the graphic of the wormhole, for one thing, and the shot of Kendra looking up at something was there too. And there was something else as well. There was some footage from that promo that ended up in the Flash finale. I can't remember if I actually vaguely remember that or if just listening to you say it as created this mental image that my brain thinks is a memory. I'm sure they showed Thon in the time sphere as well. And then the promo ended with them fighting in a dam against a giant robot and the Flash was there. Yeah, I remember that bit. It was like a proof of concept, wasn't it? Because I remember it appeared at the same time as the Supergirl trailer appeared and everybody was loving the Legends trailer and laughing at the Supergirl trailer. Yeah, you're right. The Supergirl trailer was dumb. The pilot for Supergirl isn't great. It gets better after that, but it's not a great thing. I remember people were comparing it to the SNL Black Widow trailer, but it was playing it straight. Oh, yes. I remember that now, yeah. That was a weird time, wasn't it? All the hype we were building for these upcoming shows. Remember when we weren't sure what universe Supergirl was going to be in and we were thinking about that? I remember initially thinking that the Supergirl series actually took place in the same universe as Man of Steel. And the reason why they weren't seeing Superman was because they couldn't afford to get Henry Cavill. Instead, they just couldn't be bothered casting him. Yes. Although Arrow was at one point set in the same universe as Man of Steel. There was an unused prop that was a newspaper report about an alien attack on Metropolis. These are things that all sound vaguely familiar that I might have once known. I think there was an idea at one point that they were going to do a, funnily enough, what James Gunn's doing now. TV and film are one big melting pot. I forget who it was, but someone said to me when Grant Gustin was cast for the episodes of Arrow that he'd be appearing in as Barry Allen. They said, well, I guess they're not doing this cross-connected TV film universe this guy has TV actor written all over him. <laughs> and there is some truth to that, isn't there? Although, would Grant Gustin be any more unassuming than Ezra Miller is? Probably not. No. But I'm glad they didn't ultimately set it in this DCU because that crashed and burned. And we got Tyler Hicklin's Superman instead. Indeed. Which is a great addition to anything. And we got to see Brandon Routh's Superman again. Yes, which I was actually more glad about than I thought it would be. Oh, they did it really well. I saw a comment that someone made about, you know how we've got so many evil Superman iterations these days? Yeah. Injustice was the specific thing they were referring to. Basically, it was a side-by-side picture. It was the picture of Brandon Routh, Superman. This is what would happen if Lois Lane died, not this, in a picture of Injustice. And I'm thinking, yeah, how many people fundamentally misunderstand Superman? I think the problem is a lot of people see superheroes first as a collection of abilities with any actual character a distantly second consideration. That's certainly Zack Snyder's approach. Yes. His Superman is a blunt instrument and very little else. At least in Justice League. I think in Man of Steel they do some good character stuff there. But largely later he's less than that. Uh-huh. It's unbelievable how far it built me. You think about how it kept building and building and building and I do wonder what the point where it was getting maybe too big for itself. I think maybe around Batwoman time was time to just slow down a bit because... The quality was definitely dipping at that point. I feel like Batwoman is not the best thing it could have been. I generally thought it was one of the weakest of the shows. It did get better when they replaced Kate King, though. Yeah, I will agree with that. Though for me, one of the principal issues was just how much I despised Alice <laughs> as a character. Everything about her just irritated me to the point where her presence and just having to listen to her speak irritated me. But again, I appreciate that is my personal reaction to it <laughs> and of course we got legends of tomorrow which is a joy it really really was or it was eventually season one wasn't great yeah, it was better once it found its own voice and that voice was 
utter lunacy. And then it absorbed Constantine, which is kind of in the same universe. I don't recall it ever being explicitly acknowledged that the Constantine in Legends was the same one as, as Constantine in the Constantine TV show. They kind of alluded to it because you still had the Astra origin thing. Which, granted, could come from pretty much any version, couldn't it? Yeah, because the character Astra and the whole Resurrection Crusade story arc is an aspect of the early Hellblazer comics. Yeah, one indication was when the Spectre showed up and he wasn't played by the same guy that was in Constantine. Yeah, same way, I'm Jim Corrigan and Constantine's like, not the one I know. Yeah, so there was sort of hints there, but then Zed was nowhere to be seen. Or Chaz, for that matter. Yeah, they were nowhere to be seen. And Jim Corrigan never became the Spectre in the show. And then he knows Lucifer, somehow, as in the TV show Lucifer. Yeah, just because why not? And that can't be the same Lucifer that's in his own show, because it's not the type of show where he just has a magic card that lets him into purgatory. But kind of is, but it kind of isn't. Yeah, even the context of that show itself was a little far-fetched. Yeah. So yeah, crazy. And that's how it all ends. Despite what I said, I don't think this will be the last time we ever discuss the Arrowverse. I think there's quite a lot of stuff we could pick up on here and there. I feel like we should talk about the Flash season one one day. Could do. Could be interesting to do retrospective viewing. Yeah, because it's a great season of television and it's something that we should pick up at some point, I think. Maybe some early Arrow stuff. Talk about the episodes that Barry appeared in Arrow and stuff like that. There's stuff that we can still do with this universe and we can go back to when it was good as well. Yeah. At some point. I'm not saying we do it right now, but we find an excuse. There'll be something coming out that will connect to it in some vague way and we can do an episode that links to it. There'll be an adaptation of Green Arrow that's showing up at some point in the future and we can talk about the first season of Arrow instead. Yeah, sounds like a plan because that is definitely going to happen at some point or other. Oh, of course. Yeah, I think Arrow just started out as we can't make a Batman show for legal reasons, so let's do Batman Begins on TV. Pretty much, yeah. And it worked. Yeah, it worked exceptionally well. Trained days. I would like to just watch the first few episodes of Arrow just to think about, wow, I had no idea what I was getting in for when I first started watching this show. don't think anybody did. No, and I think in retrospect, I think if anybody did claim that, they'd be lying. Well, I remember the end of the first episode where they revealed that Laurel's name was actually Dinah Laurel Lance. And I remember thinking, I wonder if she'll get powers at some point. And of course she never did. Indicators like that, it does demonstrate that people actually adapting the material are to at least some degree familiar with it, which certainly gives you some hope that it might be done properly. It was one of those holdover from Smallville-type references, wasn't it? We're going to make a very deliberate reference and wink at you as we're doing it kind of thing. Yeah. Which I was okay with because I liked Smallville, so... It was fine that Arrow did that in its first episode. Why not? There was precedence. One thing I remember impressing me about Arrow is that it burned through what would have been a season's worth of plot on Smallville in like three episodes. That is very true, yes. I remember being very impressed by that, how the status quo kept upsetting itself because you know, the whole Diggle learning all over secret thing that happens really quickly. But I was expecting that to be at least a season-long frustration. You just have Oliver constantly escaping him every week and Diggle saying, if you do that one more time, I'm quitting. And then you find the reason not to quit. That sounds very plausible. So, any final thoughts on the final season of The Flash before you never have to think about it ever again? Honestly, just a reiteration of how profoundly disappointing it was, even by the already low standards I'd set for it, and that I am very glad it's over and I never have to watch or think about it again. I'm just going to echo that. Yeah, I'm so glad to be done with this. It's felt like a true endurance test for quite a long time. For a show to sink so low is just remarkable in itself. It is an achievement that it managed to start off so brilliantly and end the way it did. It feels like it takes effort 
actually. But it's over now. It wasn't without its moments in the final season. As we've talked about here, we've come up with some positive commentary, at least. So that's good. We got a bit of balance in there. We weren't just rubbishing it for four hours. So that's nice. But yeah, that's it. It's over. The Arrowverse is over. We have to move on with our lives. Cling on to the vain hope that Superman and Lois might survive for another season. It would have to think so, but I would be very surprised. And by the time this goes out, we might know the answer to that. Very true. So, that was our discussion of the final season of The Flash. I would like to thank Neil Stenson for the supplied music, and Andrew, I would like to thank you for joining me for this final run. I accept your thanks, though I hope you can fully appreciate how much of a chore it was for me. As long as this recording wasn't a chore for you, I'll take that. Oh no, that was pure and ultimately joy from start to finish. Good. If you like what you heard here, please do hit subscribe on... Spotify, Apple Podcasts, anywhere you get your podcasts, there will be a subscribe button and usually a button that lets you rate. And those ratings usually come in the form of stars. So if we were to throw a lightning bolt into the sky, how many stars would it strike? You would certainly hope that it would be a big fat five. We would hope so. And please do leave a comment as well. If you want to talk about the Arrowverse, the Flash, anything really, you could hit us up on Facebook or Twitter under your before blog or leave us a comment on legalbeforeblog.co.uk. And as always, we hope you'll join us on Neil Before Pot. <laughs>